everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. This is True Love Waits Part 2. Um, this episode's lengthier because I'm reading listener stories. I just wanted to include as many as possible into what's potentially palatable podcast length, so don't be too spooked by it. Um, I'm just so, it's so cool that people sh- were willing to share with me, and I thought I'd be robbing you if I, you know, didn't take the opportunity to read as many as possible. Um, I appreciate any and all feedback from the first episode. It meant a lot. This is like weirdly a difficult thing for me to like cover, even though I'm trying to speak about it breezily. It is kind of like personal and I don't even know that I've even processed in full at times. And when you guys send in these detailed, well-written like accounts of your lives, I just like, it's incredible and, um, people deserve to hear them. And I think you're going to help a lot of people feel less isolated in their situations. And I so appreciate everyone who wrote in. I'm like, how you know, this weekend I've been like, I always, you know, I always am down a rabbit hole. I've been playing a lot of GeoGuessr this weekend, which is a game online that uh, drops you at a singular point on Google Earth. And you have to navigate your way around to look at street signs and cars and license plates and cues and clues and t- topography to figure out where you are. And it's truly thrilling and educational, and I can't recommend it enough. But uh, in the other parts of this weekend um, that I wasn't working, I... Uh, was reading a lot about like millennials and their relationship to sex. And, um, you know, I feel like we're so consistently referred to as this, you know, entitled, self-absorbed, screen obsessed, you know, kind of more carefree generation that I thought largely would probably be um, widely thought to be more promiscuous or like at least more sex positive or more, um, you know, have I feel like I hear about like hookup culture a lot attributed to us. And you guys know I'm always trying to defend millennials. And I think there's incredible uh, depth that we're not given credit for. I think we have an incredibly dynamic background in terms of having a little bit of technology in our later youth, but having a wholesome youth without it. That was kind of in a funny, you know, semi-brief era where we had like pretty clunky, slow technology. And it bred a lot of patience and a lot of resourcefulness. And I also think, you know, in growing up in uh, the 9-11 era and school shootings in Columbine and obviously my experience at Virginia Tech, and um, we, we've had to adapt to some pretty serious stuff, to some major changes in a lot of how the world works. And um, I just think that, like, I, I I am constantly frustrated how we're pegged to be, you know, the people speak about it so negatively, yet I think a lot of the th- things that people think are us are actually Gen Z, not to push the insults onto another generation, but also when you research like what you know any research with millennials and intimacy you find like such interesting data about how uh we are having less and less well it's kind of interesting because you know you you can kind of cater data to be a flattering denominator to what story you're trying to tell but if you look at like you know like i read a stat in the last episode that about how the number of partners has increased uh but the frequency has decreased which the the Considering the frequency of how often you have it includes people in relationships, I think that's a really interesting data point. And that's what like the Atlantic used for something called the sex recession of millennials. And when you and when I was reading this article, they they talked to so many people who try to attribute this to so many things um, and they go through like, you know, uh, the consequences of hookup culture, of crushing economic pressures, of surging anxiety rates, of uh, psychological frailty of widespread antidepressant use, streaming television, environmental estrogens leaked by plastics, dropping testosterone levels, digital porn, the vibrator's golden age, dating apps, 
Option paralysis, helicopter parents, careerism, smartphones, news cycle, information overload, or generally sleep deprivation uh, of obesity, name a modern blight and someone somewhere is ready to blame it for messing with the modern libido. And nowhere do they mention, you know, what's so interesting is for researchers of, of this caliber to attribute our, uh, you know, like the data about like sex drive to uh, the current zeitgeist, our current environments, and in no way in- attribute it to uh, what we were doing when and where we were wh- when we learned about sex. And how does that, Im- what are those implications when you're an adult that's supposed to be having a lot of it in or outside of a relationship? And so much of the, of the data collected about sex is, is pre-marriage. But what about post? And um, I just think it's so fascinating. And there's almost this blind spot of, if, if we're talking about sociological research and sign of the times, you know, us millennials, especially older millennials, we were at the the true intersection of so many uh, conservative, like socially conservative issues, you know, following the Reagan administration, the, you know, George H.W. Bush administration and the, uh, you know, the, the push for abstinence only education with things like true love weights and the, you know, S- Southern Baptist Convention raising millions of dollars from the U.S. government and that's have, having, you know, non-secular ideologies trickling further into our public education system to, you know, what the what, what the world's mentality was like, what our priorities were, what our fears were, what our responses were following the AIDS crisis. I just think that there's this really interesting, what I would think is a bit of a blind spot, not that I you know anything data-wise about, you know, not necessarily how we behave now because of like, you know, environmental estrogens leaked by plastics but how we were you know many of us were taught only about abstinence that there was no other option we weren't taught about anatomy we weren't taught about how sex works we weren't talked about any nothing was talked to us about any other base besides home uh we we didn't know about all the other stuff we didn't know about what to do if we got ourselves in a situation that was less than what they perceived to be the best case scenario We, we weren't taught about if women should enjoy it we weren't taught anything that wasn't like uh at least in my experience and what you'll hear of many people today we just weren't taught anything positive we just like should be scared of it it should be avoided at all costs all these horrible things can and will happen to us and if it does happen to us it's largely because we are being you know temptresses and uh you know that outside of marriage it's something that is like so filthy, but in marriage isn't. Um, but then like, even without that distinguisher, it's just a confusing messaging period to always have associated with a thing when you learn about it. It's one thing to learn about something and then have somebody, you know, give you their opinion. You can choose to absorb it or repel it based on what, you know, your own perspective. But to have your perspective kind of um, spoon fed to you with a such a heavy bias is weird because the way you learn about it and your version of the truth is some hyper conservative agendaed, you know, uh, non-secular version of the truth that you're having to forever recalibrate. And I'm just like, I'm obsessed with this concept. I think it's really interesting. And I feel like we're a lost generation of women that like people forget that, you know, maybe a lot of our behaviors now are so largely rooted in um, the, you know, beliefs of the people that were trying to form our minds. And even if we've abandoned those beliefs, it still affects our behaviors. And in what ways? And um, I don't know. I just think it's interesting. And I hope you guys do too. And I'll get into the stories now. But 
just some background. I was reading more about the sex recession. I was like, how are we talking about like these hyper specific symptoms of a problem that nobody can figure out? And like nobody's talking about shame, guilt and fear as it relates to sex. It just seems so much more simple than crushing economic pressures and testosterone levels and careerism in the news cycle. <laughs> but what are you going to do? What do I know? Again, not a journalist. We're just shooting the shit here. I just want to be able to share and learn and experience things together. And, um, you know, if there's something that interests you guys that's not being represented enough or talked about enough elsewhere, I would love, love, love to have it be here. And, um, yeah, without further ado, one of the emails was about this play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And it's the scariest, most problematic play I've ever seen that depicts um, your judgment. At, well, A, it's incorrectly, it is designed to make Satan seem as powerful as God and like his direct opposite, like two poles of a magnet, when really it's like God is punishing and condemning Satan. And for Satan to take such joy and laughter and like other people's misfortune, I think it's like against the entire point. But basically, it's a series of skits. And I watched it on YouTube. There's a lot of different quality ranges. So there's one version that combines this like movie media with um, the actual like church skits. And it's like several minutes of Jesus dragging across through all these like dire situations. Um, there's somebody shooting up heroin. There's like sex and there's abortion and there's more snorting of cocaine. There's parties. There's like all these awful things. Jesus is dragging his cross and helping people anyway. And that shows like a really, really graphic depiction of his crucifixion, him being beaten and all that stuff that I just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. And then they go into the skits and the skits are people that are like doing everything from like drinking and drugs and suicide to like more innocuous things that, you know, like, you know, you're not witnessing and making your mom accept Christ into her heart. But anyways, after all of these individual situations of quote unquote bad stuff, they they like die. The movie I watch like shows the casket closing and then they show them at their judgment and there's like Satan and God. And then people are being like split up and some are taken to heaven and some are taken to hell. And the way they depict Satan is like literally party city pitchfork. Um, he's like wearing a cloak. He like has all these demons. They, uh, you know, for example, um, one girl had accepted Christ into her heart. Her mother hadn't. Because her mom was, like, not a bad person. She was just, like, agnostic and, like, hadn't really done it yet. Um, and when she they when they both unexpectedly die, they're at the gates. And um, her mom gets, like, like swiftly pulled away by demons. They're, like, biting her neck. They're, like, you know, going to break her. They're going to, like, toss her into flames for eternity. And she's like, mother! But then, like, Jesus comes and hugs her and accepts her because she accepted him into her heart. And she's like, okay, never mind. Peace! And I'm like, what? And then there's another little boy who, like, hasn't accepted Christ into his heart because he's, like, young and it's because his dad's not religious. But, like, he can't drive or he doesn't, like, have access to a Bible. So, like, I'm not really sure how he's supposed to learn. But, like, he and his dad die unexpectedly and they both burn in hell. And I'm like, oh, okay, what? And then they, um, the scenes where they do drugs and, like, drink, Satan takes, like, full credit for them, which is kind of funny. He's like, uh, you know, uh, my salvation, like, my— my salvation comes in the form of little white baggies. Oh, like truly relax, El Chapo. Like it, I, the, he, it, it basically is like give Satan so much power. You never like really see God or Jesus that much. It's just like, it's not that anybody who does bad things goes to hell. It's anybody that doesn't agree with the Christian goes to hell, which, you know, is a great message for our country. This play is still alive and well, mind you. And I just like, I don't know, I guess Satan like incinerates all the people that, uh, you know, do things that he is directly attempting and then he like snorts them off of a coffee table because he appears to be like really into drugs 
And anyway, it's just like it's it's the, the most alarming liberties being taken on the Bible. Anybody would tell you this is not how hell is depicted. It's so such a problem. And even worse, the whole point of it is to like convert people. And like the director at the end of the play goes up to the front. They like ask people if they want their soul saved by Christ. Meanwhile, they've just been shown like 12 different ways they're going to die, um, you know, from doing kind of normal things. And they're made to think that like inevitably they're going to go to the gates and like be, you know, eternally condemned. And then they, they're going to watch their loved ones go through the pearly gates because they're on the book of life. And like at one point, one girl like sees her um like a, a loved one that like died who she like desperately misses but since she was um you know like had a beer or something with one of her friends like a beer she gets uh you know like completely like the kind of violently torn away from heaven's gates by the demons and she can see on the other side of heaven's gates like this person she loves that has died and like the person that died just like waves at them I'm like, what is it? Like, what? If this were the case, we should be singing Jesus hates me, this I know. Like, this, it's the most miserable thing I've ever seen. And apparently it converts a ton of people and, like, tons of people every time this play, you know, is put on wherever, like, come have their soul saved. But my question is, like, do you want people there for the right reasons? Or do you want people that you just scared shitless to be like, oh, crap, I've done a lot of that stuff that people burned in hell for. Guess I better, you know, ask for redemption now. Or just, like, I, it's just... It's kind of stupid and it's cheap. Y if you show somebody a live action horror film, literally scarier than anything, like I would have, I would have never slept again. Obviously, they're they're going to be affected. It's just, it's so, it's uh, it. It honestly, it really, it really upset me watching this. And I guess it was further proof to me that like these fear based tactics are still absolutely thriving. And um, it like if I, I just feel like if you want to convert people, you need to focus on grace, on mercy, on love. It, it, but this play is only like God is torture. God has no mercy. God hates you. And uh, God doesn't believe in free will. And he only loves you if you participate under a very strict set of circumstances. And if you don't, like you will burn, you will perish, you will be, you know, condemned for eternity and perhaps worse forced to wear a, a get up from the party city. Anyways, it's a very weird play. I couldn't get past it and it fascinated me and whatever. Um, which leads me to my emails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because they there's a couple different ones and um one of them i thought was interesting mentioned this but in the format of a haunted house so kind of like hey you want halloween we'll show you halloween um but instead of like make-believe you know like skeletons and ghouls and goblins oh my this is actually you're going to be your reality um you know should you partake in any of this and basically they um go to, uh, it's called a hell house, and your youth group goes to it, and they lead you through horrible scenes of demons that cause people to do terrible stuff. So there's, like, reenactments of dr a drunk driving accident, of an abortion, of rape, of all the these circumstances that are, you know, quite literally the consequences of can be hell on earth and will lead you to your judgment. And after you go through these really graphic depictions of things that nobody needs to be seeing in person, um especially because you're being told, like, this is what life looks like if you're not a Christian. Um, then at the end of the haunted house, you're told you have a choice. And if you want to be controlled by demons and go to hell, go one way. 
<laughs> and if you want to go to heaven to come this way and then to talk to somebody who I guess is then going to save your soul. It's like, is this like an MLM? Like, do you get like a, like, do you get a kickback if you convert a certain number of souls? Like, what's the incentive to just like, do like mass produce assembly lines, say, like salvation? It's, it's, it's so hollow. There's no meaning behind it when you're just scaring the shit out of people. And it enrages me. It's so, that's so messed up. And as a person who's easily scared and who hates horror movies, um, I just, I, ugh. I, I, it would have, I would honestly, I would have never slept again. And uh, several people said that these things uh, haunted them for years because they were so graphic. And, um, you know, anyway, uh, the other thing that was weird about that Hell's Gate and Hell's Heaven's Gate and Hell's Flames play at one point, the um, Satan, like after the kids that were drunk driving die, that he's like, Satan takes credit for um, beer commercials. And I'm like, well, beer is legal. Once you're over 21, like, you can be a Christian and still have a beer. And also, like, okay, Ogilvy and Mather and Lucifer, like, are you, like, I don't know, like, Don Draper? I, I, are you doing some light storyboarding in the underworld? Like, why are they talking about beer commercials? It goes from, like, really, real extreme to them, like, claiming that the most innocuous thing is a sin. And I just, like, I don't know, can't, can't get past it. There's so, so many things. But uh, I'm going to go through some of my DMs really fast that I got that are some quicker stories. And then I'll get into the more uh, at-length ones. These are in random order. Um, so, you know, I wanted to showcase a, a, a spectrum, some funny, some not at all. Some I actually haven't even read in full because um, sometimes I like to just like read them live. Uh, so, yeah, we'll just go through these and long. It's long. If it's not, it's not. <laughs> what am I kidding? It will be lengthy, but uh, it's just, you know, no ads, no pressure, no expectation. Just you and me and the amazing women who uh took the time to write in their experience to share it so you know we feel less alone we're able to uh have some information to move forward and, and do better and uh just to kind of share in something i think very uniquely this generation um you know re can relate to one another about especially in more socially conservative upbringings and beyond that things that i think are hard to even you know confide in husbands and stuff about like they, they, they weren't talked to the same way we are i think that sometimes only there's only other women that really can understand and if you're you know other women didn't grow up in this it's kind of really hard to articulate and even when I was listening back to my podcast I was like I don't know if I'm explaining this well because it's just but anyways what what are you gonna do Any, so uh, just to go through a couple of the dms first here's an oh god a metaphor example I went to a church of christ school in the all girls bible class we got a full theater performance our insane teacher had a big juicy apple and started to explain that this represented our purity, holiness, and worthiness of our future husband. If you get a boyfriend and you two decide to kiss, then she takes a huge bite of the apple. This is what your purity looks like now. She continues to go on and on until the apple is a core. Then she explains that if we have sex, this nasty, rotten apple core is what we'll look like to our God-chosen husband. What if he waited for you and you didn't wait for him? Wouldn't he be upset? How would you feel then? It was an entire charade. Looking back, it's honestly so embarrassing for a 50-year-old woman to be doing that. Scare tactics to the max. Yeah, I agree. Also, I'd almost argue that... It's kind of also a metaphor that, you know, despite obvious, uh, you know, your typical thoughts of like a rotten apple core and like, you know, the implications of oxidation, you know, it kind of also represents that despite what happens to your appearance and like the parts of you that are more uh, desirable and that people might like, at the end of the day, you're still yourself at your core. You know what I mean? You're still intact. Nobody can bite at your core. This person said that I was a full-on church kid and church camp kid was on the worship team, which was contemporary music, Saturday night services, and we did a song called Thy Word, where a girl doesn't have a date to prom and Jesus ends up being her date. 
And there was this whole sequence of acting it out on stage. <laughs> oh my God. The problem is you have to consider, like, even if you think that that field of thought is right, you have to consider the, a person going to school and sharing that and how it would be received. If you go to prom solo and prom's like junior, senior year, you're like over 16 and everyone's like, oh, where's your date? Who are you going with? Like, does somebody do a promposal? And you're like, yeah, they did in the form of eternal life. My date is Jesus. No wonder my camp counselor would talk about how sexy he was. In some places, people are just telling you to date Jesus. The problem is he can't even drive. I would assume that like, and whenever people are like Jesus take the wheel, I'm like, he wouldn't know how. You know what I mean? Anyway, next email. Um, this person says, freshman year of high school, our Bible teacher had us write on a piece of paper how far we had gone with the opposite sex, zero to 10. Then we put them in a bowl and he opened all of them and put them on the whiteboard to see how many people had done each number. We then had to re read the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, about how it's important not to kiss until your wedding day. Literally, my friends talk about how detrimental it was to us. And we are 32 now. I'm married with two kids and I'll never forget. Dang, it's honest. Like, what's funny about that is it's like so not Christian. It's so messed up and weird to young people. But it, then it's also like this funny thing where as an adult with like girlfriends, it's also kind of like a juicy game of never have I ever vacation Bible school style. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you, when you're being shamed, it's not funny in the context of like, uh, want to know what everyone's been up to it's like gossipy but also you add a male doing it into the mix and literally I do like I can't even go there about how he was probably getting way too excited hearing everybody's responses and that's what was kind of the premise of um that this American Life episode I've talked about that it's like I think it's called six six it's episode 661 maybe google um and that's what happened this American Life and it's an episode that my listeners told me about and the first half is a uh, a Mormon woman or former Mormon talking about how um, she would have to meet with her bishop on a consistent basis. And he would, they ask very like prying questions about what had been done sexually and then proceed to ask extreme details about like over under shirt, nipple, mouth, like all these things that are just like so disgusting to even be asking a young person, but then to, you know, proceed to offer, you know, to shame them and then offer your forgiveness and then they repent and feel bad and da da da. Um, and it's, it's the same sort of thing where like, even if no one's like, uh, touching you or talking to you a certain way, there's a certain creepiness about explicit detail being asked of you by a grown man that I think is very much intentional and very much satisfies them. And it's very disturbing. Okay. Next email. Hello, this hit home once a year. My church growing up would do a segment on raging hormones and would tell us all the things boys and girls experience in our teen years. They'd separate the boys from the girls and have the pastors of each gender explain the preciousness of virginity and saving themselves for their spouse. My boyfriend junior year told me that bo the boys were even talked to about masturbation and how every time they'd do it, a puppy died. So instead of doing that, they would think of chocolate cake. Not sure how chocolate cake would change their urge. I feel like that would give them a weird relationship to talk chocolate cake for the rest of their lives. And puppies too, I guess. That I don't know whether to like laugh or... <laughs> oh my god what if somebody like was aroused upon the sight of it every time there was chocolate cake that's like kind of funny and like what if every time they see a puppy they're like you're welcome um the girls were given numerous metaphors about virginity we were beautiful flowers and having premarital premarital sex was like picking a petal off of our flower and our husband would be left with nothing the gift was no longer wrapped you get it we were also told that boys that ha boys have a special chemical in their brain, so modest clothing was necessary as to not set off this chemical. <laughs> Science, I tell you. Oh, my God. It's interesting to me that when the discussion of sex 
that the discussion of sex never talked was never talked about after marriage though pre-marriage is all don't do it because your flower petals will be plucked but with your husbands it's not plucking your petals it's magically making your flower bloom because of a covenant you've made between your husband the trinity and the state whatever and riddle me this why is it always discussed in the ceremony when the couple is waiting like we get it you haven't seen each other's flowers and you moved the wedding up six months so you could sign the lease to a bitch in apartment to not live in sin but grandma helen is sitting in the front row do we have to discuss your sex life in your vows It's a given the couple consummates at some point, but those waiting for marriage make an extra point to mention it in the ceremony. Also, I knew the groom in college. Grandma Helen would be shocked at the petal plucking he did those four years. Oh, shit. (laughs) Really? Oh. Okay, okay. I mean, you, you deserve to go to Satan's coke den if your wife waited for you and you lied and said you waited too. That's like pretty plucking messed up. I mean... Yikes. That's really sad, actually. Oh, God. Thank you for your email. <laughs> this one's another metaphor example. Hello from someone who is a product of abstinence only sex ed from Catholic school. Her school was somewhat pro- progressive, Montessori style, but they used a deeply troubling outside sex, ec- sex ed company called Operation Keepsake, which still exists in Northeastern Ohio. They ran an an intriguing yet terrifying week of sex ed classes, some co-ed, some separated by sex, for sixth graders, and it was hosted by a lady named Mrs. Raymond. Their slogan was, you are a treasure box. (laughs) There was one noteworthy activity she used to illustrate the ultimate betrayal of God in our treasure box selves that comes from premarital sex. In the activity, each kid took a dumb, dumb sucker from a bag. We were told to open it and enjoy it. A few licks in, we were instructed to rewrap our suckers and toss them in a communal paper bag. The bag was passed around so each kid could grab a dubiously wrapped dum-dum. Afterwards, Miss Raymond asked us with guilt-inducing deadpan that made me feel like I needed to go to confession, even though I hadn't hadn't even kissed a boy yet. Do you want to eat the sucker now? This is what you're offering your husband or wife if you have sex before marriage. Yep, so that's how I learned about sex. See, it's like even that's like uh, doesn't even have. I mean, she was in Catholic school, but that these i it's like i could do a separate thing on sex ed in these programs because mine was so so disturbing uh, speaking of okay um this person went to a camp in arkansas for about 12 years she was even a counselor looking back i realized how many crazy things they taught us it's run by southern baptist from houston and they really harp on accepting jesus into your heart if you do you get to meet the owner of the camp and sign some door i never saw the door <laughs> what I love that as being like a reward. But also if I saw that in a pamphlet as a parent, like, uh, you know, if if your soul like is eternally saved, like congrats on your pending salvation. You get to spend time with this like super old dude who runs like a youth camp. It's like, why? Why is that a reward? It sounds kind of creepy, right? Anyway. Uh, when you become high school age, you get to go uh, to this thing called sex on the beach. It's really touted like this great thing that is so enlightening. You sit on the beach by the lake, and the camp owner, Sam, who is probably about 70 now, talks about sex. He explains how men are like microwaves. They heat up really fast, but they cool off super fast, too. Women are like crockpots. It takes a while to get them hot, but once you do, you can't turn them off. Oh, my God, I'm cringing. I'm dying. Sex on the beach. I can't even. Oh, my God. Um, He would also tell us that anything below the neck is off limits until after marriage. Then he would tell a story about his wedding night. Apparently, he howled at the moon and their sex life went off like a rocket because they'd waited. I just threw my papers. Ew, he howled like, ew. Oh, my God. 
This is what I mean. Why are pervy old men teaching these things? Ew. <laughs> Werewolf bar mitzvah. Spooky, scary. <laughs> That's what I think of ever howling. When I think of howling at the moon. Uh, during orientation as a counselor, they would also show you a slideshow of all the couples who have met and married because of camp. They want everyone to marry other camp people because they are good Christians. Um, I loved going there growing up, but I will not be sending my children. Well, I mean, this crockpot agrees that uh, that is a great place to to find a husband if you at the top of your list is, you know, man of God and not wears a watch, apparently. But also, I definitely in college, like thought about being a counselor at the camp that I had really unsure, like ethical feelings about just because I was, you know, again, scoping out those uh, youth pastors and counselors. I mean, you know, the thought of a, a guy who you know, plays acoustic guitar, has a sensible ha side-parted haircut, is lightly pink-cheeked, not overly, you know, chiseled in their physique, extremely nice and upbeat in their demeanor, doesn't have a lot of ex-girlfriends. His name is probably like Brock or Travis, and unlike every other dude, would be impressed by my, you know, non-secular uh, lexicon of sign language. I mean, even though, like, I, the, describing yourself first and foremost as a man of God is a bit of a boner killer. And I don't, just like in terms of, you can be one and I want to be able to see it, but I don't need you to tell me if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, you know how, um, I mean, I don't know this, but you know how, like, Catherine Jaducci from The Bachelor, like, sh when she and Sean got together, she was like a vegan, super liberal, like, worked for Amazon graphic designer. And he was like a devout, born again Christian virgin. And now, like, she's kind of adopted more of that uh, mentality. I always think about her because I'm like, I totally would have done that because, like, I had such bad experiences with dating and boys. And, like, honestly, my criteria at the time was, like, doesn't cheat on me. And, like, somebody who, like, doesn't even date, you know, until, like, they're courting someone, like, probably isn't going to cheat on you. So, you know, there comes in the positives of the man of God thing. One of many. Um, but I honestly, like, my type was, like, pays attention to me. And um, I probably, like, would have seriously dated somebody that was super devout just because I was used to used to it. But then, like, ultimately, we would not have aligned because it wasn't really, like, my soul and spirit. It was more like my adoption of what everyone was saying around me. And even though I acknowledged there was a disconnect from what I, like, really felt, it was still, like, getting in there. Um, and I just always wonder, you know, I don't know what it's like. I, I just think people like me that were very insecure at the time uh, could have chosen a partner who I could have convinced myself I aligned with their values and beliefs, but I really didn't. I was just kind of like feeding into it because I like liked the dude and he was nice to me. I don't know. I think about this sometimes. Not that Catherine did that by any stretch, but uh, I, I would think it would be a bit of a transition to go from like a person with total free will to whatever they want out on the West Coast to like, you know, Texas born again lifestyle. But they seem to be very happy. They have adorable kids and I'm very happy for them. And I don't mean to project. This person says, I went to a True Love Waits conference with my youth group when I was in eighth grade. It was a huge ordeal. We met for dinner at the church and rode in a bus to the conference together. I don't remember much for the preaching of the preaching, but I will never forget the giant wooden heart display that they took an axe to over and over again to show how it couldn't be put together again. You Humpty Dumpty. Oh, my God. And this, they took an axe over and over again to show how it couldn't be put back together again in the same way it started. There was definitely emphasis on the fact that the more people that axed it, the harder it would be to put back together. Also, it's kind of like, geez, rough. Um, I got a ring with a Bible verse on it and also learned my ring size that night. 
I stopped wearing my ring when J Nick Jonas did because obviously it didn't matter that much to actually wear the ring. Sure, N Nick didn't actually have sex before marriage. Now looking back, I'm sure he did. I did too, so I guess I'm just still trying to impress Nick Jonas. Watch out, Priyanka. <laughs> oh my God. I love you guys. You're so funny. I have so much. Okay, this is a new email. I have so much to say about this topic that I could write a novella, so I'm going to highlight the most upsetting and damaging thing I experienced during this movement. When I was growing up from third to eighth grade, I was part of a Bible study called Fantastic Fridays. You guessed it, we met on Fridays. It was about eight girls, and the Bible study was run by two of the girls' moms. All of our parents were friends. Attendance was not op optional. You just went. When we were in eighth grade and about to go to high school, we had a true love wait sleepover. I would have done literally anything else, but again, there was no choice, which speaks volumes to the overarching issue. When we got there, they offered us ice cream. It was an off-brand vanilla, and we were told that we could have that ice cream now or wait until one of the other moms got there with Girl Scout cookie ice cream. Seeing as I am allergic to the nuts in the ice cream they were picking up, and I liked vanilla and was down for ice cream, I had a bowl. Everyone else waited. As a person with a nut allergy who loves some vanilla, I feel for you. I would have done the same thing. Also, like, who is, what is Jane Goodall? Like, like, why are you running experiments on sixth graders? It almost seems like some sort of creepy science experiment, but one that you didn't, like, sign off on. Um... So we sit down, me with my bowl of ice cream on my lap, and the message begins. Our bodies and our purity are is a gift to our husband. It's a way to honor him and God, etc. And that we could make a bad choice and settle, or we could wait a little longer and hold out for the best that God has for us. Message over, and the Girl Scout ice cream had arrived. And the punchline, everyone else waited for the good ice cream, and I settled for vanilla. I remember everyone, but particularly the adults, erupting in laughter at the fact that I couldn't wait. It was from that day, at 13 years old, that I really felt tremendous shame. From then, I was known amongst the group as the girl who settled. Um, isn't that an interesting? This is what this is so interesting to me. I, these these are like this is the spectrum of examples I want. That seems innocuous, like oh, ha ha, she p didn't pass the test. She didn't wait. Like let's all laugh at her, and she might have laughed along. But you just don't know how that is embarrassing somebody, how that impacts somebody, and the message it's sending to them. Like a, I don't like that experimental format with young people, but b like. I'm a fellow, uh, I have a nut allergy, I am impatient, and I genuinely do like vanilla. And to then make somebody question their instincts and question their own character, and then to publicly laugh and make fun of them. Like, I think we all can relate to being like young and uncomfortable. And like, we remember when we were embarrassed, we remembered it when we were laughed at. Oh, okay, I didn't finish the email. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, Five years later, I was raped. I was a virgin. Yes, I was drinking, but it was awful, violent, and I was left bruised and hurting. Instead of telling someone, I was so worried I was going to get in trouble and my family would be so embarrassed of me for my behavior. I was just so ashamed and felt so damaged, like my one value is now gone. I lied about the bruises and made up whatever stories I could to make sure nobody found out. It's taken so much therapy and unlearning and reframing to somehow remove the shame from sex. Even in a committed and loving relationship, sex still feels just not what I think it should be. I could go on and on about this, but had to weigh in since it's such a presence in my life, and I was glad you brought this up. Thanks for discussing this, Kate. I'm so sorry. God. This is why this conversation is important. This is, like, if ice cream can make somebody feel like they should be embarrassed and ashamed and damaged for something that was done to them that was violent and terrible and 
in life altering for for the instinct to be like, well, I was drinking and not that something unimaginably horrible and criminal and inexcusable happened to you that you by no means brought on to yourself. And it kind of represents this broader issue that we see so much when when there are like public uh, cases of, of rape or assault in the media. And like, the, you know, the one if the focal point is on clothes, if the focal point is on drinking, whatever it is, like we have to stop coming like from the perspective of being, you know, using the excuse of being drunk to excuse what men do so often, whether it's with, you know, whether it's abuse or assault or like crazy controlling, alarming behavior, uh, destructive, uh, whether they're fighting, like smashing through glass, like there's all sorts of things that like people are like, well, he was drunk and like you know, men, boys will be boys. Men are barbarians. Like it brings out this, you know, side of them. But like, no, when it comes to a man, so often the narrative is that if a man is drinking, it excuses the things that he does. And for women, drinking is used to excuse the things that a man does to her. And it kills me, kills me that anybody would ever, ever blame themselves, ever not tell people be hiding bruises like it's 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 heartbreaking it's it's it like but at the same time i like get it i get it i think i would have done the same and i like i hate even saying that but like it's and that's a layered issue of like rape culture of of you know not not only the the piece about being told you know she was a virgin she said like that, you know, this is the gift she only gift she has to give her husband. But like then that paired with kind of the societal issue, the double standard, the the, you know, blaming the victim blaming on, on being drunk, on what you're wearing, on whatever that, you know, the, the purity piece makes you feel like it's your one value. And once it's gone, it's lost and, you know, you can't get it back. And there's the feeling of like, um, there's the shame and suffering of that alone in terms of how closely it's often tied to self-worth. But when you think about kind of the broader societal, even secular notion that women, you know, somehow solicit this behavior from men, it, it, it that's like, you know, providing this default level of like embarrassment and shame just enough, like, you know, decision-making, like outside of the sexuality piece. And like, I, I just, it's, it's, it's this catastrophic combination of, you know, the shame and guilt and embarrassment, but also the injustice, the also probably like having to see and be around, you know, their attackers and also of these people getting off scot-free. And like I was saying in the last episode, like one of my biggest concerns, especially as it relates to purity culture, is how hospitable of an environment it, it creates for unreported sexual assault. And like, this is such an example of like, this person did, didn't even have the most extreme purity story and still felt like her one value was lost. And like, it, the, like even the smallest of messages, the smallest of metaphors planted in a developmental mind go very far and can't be taken lightly and it's just we can't we as adults cannot treat young people's minds as the same as ours like they have the wherewithal to you know let the ideas they want to accept seep into their brain and bounce off the other ones they don't everything is being absorbed at all times and it's just it's it's a huge responsibility and i i'm so thank you for sharing and i'm so sorry and like um i don't know like i'm I never want any anybody that I, you know, any of my listeners, anybody I love, anybody I care about, any woman period to ever go through something like that at all. Again, thank you so, so, so much for sharing. 
it's kind of like, okay, you want to, you want a metaphor, you want a real life example of like to, to teach people how damaging, you know, premarital sex can be to your future relationship and your eternity with God. Let's flip the script. Let me show you an example of how what you're doing is fucking up the hearts and minds of young people. And it's perhaps the most evil and manipulative usage of the gospel. It's imaginable to use it to try to make people feel as guilty and fearful and, you know, not in control as possible. It's just like the I think that people just don't realize that these things happen a lot more than they think they do. And like. And like I talked about earlier this week, if somebody had said there just wasn't like a conversation around, um, you know, if it's just so one sided abstinence only and there's no conversation around, uh, you know, what to do about STDs or unwanted pregnancies and what to do about sexual assault, like just because you don't talk about things doesn't make them go away. And then then people don't talk about them and therefore they're likely even far more prevalent than we even think and by not equipping people with any concept of you know a the mental component of it not being your fault of telling somebody of not being ashamed not being embarrassed like just being realistic about what would happen and the protocol following whether you know law enforcement or uh going to the hospital all of that stuff like you know not going to your bishop for example first jesus christ um but also emphasizing and acknowledging that like bad people exist and this does happen like, no wonder you would feel alone if you didn't, if this wasn't on your radar, you know? If it's like a one-off or like something you think, like, that's why people think they caused it. And I mean, I'm, I, I know I need to get off this tangent, but like, I could forever stay on this tangent. But anyway, again, thank you for sharing and trusting, you know, our, our audience with this. I'm just like so amazed by all of like, I just can't even believe you guys took the time to, like, write these in. It just, like, means a lot to me because um, this topic means a lot to me. And I just can't thank you enough for um you know providing your incredibly insightful and important input another email um hey kate just listened to the latest podcast where you talked about purity and religion i've got a story for you on the topic i grew up in the christian reformed church and i'm still a member to this day we don't have major rules like mormon lds does but staying pure until marriage is a big deal thankfully my parents were not the type to disown you or shove that down our throats even if they preferred we waited but they never made sex sound shameful so fast forward i have a friend who grew up in the same church but her parents were super strict and always talked about purity and waiting. It was a huge deal to them, telling their children they will go to hell if they have premarital sex. When she started dating her now husband, they were both virgins and wanted to wait until they were married. But his upbringing was more like mine, where he was taught to wait, but his parents never made it sound evil or scary. However, once they were married, my friend cried about having sex with her husband for a year straight. Every time things got intimate, she freaked out and sobbed. She felt so guilty, even though she was married now, but she spent so many years hearing that sex was bad that she just couldn't turn it off. I took her going to therapy on her own and couples therapy for her to finally stop crying and feeling so horrible. I truly feel bad for her and her husband, but he was so sweet and they worked it out. I guess my thoughts that are if you're a parent and you want to teach your kids abstinence, that's totally fine. But don't use fear tactics and make the act itself sound shameful and horrifying. Engraving that into someone's mind for years and years can cause more harm in a marriage than good. Anyway, just wanted to share that story. That's no, that's that that's such an important example of the light switch, right? like it's it's impossible to make something seem evil and dirty and sinful and then to walk down the aisle and all is you know yeah all access granted get your freak on do whatever you want it's like these people like a lot of times not only have zero education or concept or comfortability talking about it or even knowing what goes on but then also just like 
And then that's like not a, then it's like becomes an uncomfortable thing to even talk to your spouse about. Cause I do think it's, it's, it, it, the way it's talked about to women is different. It makes you feel different. And, um, it's just, yeah, it's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I've also heard from a decent amount of, um, people who are still very much involved with their church and very religious. And again, I'm glad because this is not the point of that conversation at all. Um, but this person says there would love to hear more about my thoughts on purity culture. I grew up in the church and this was hammered into our heads from a young age. I cannot tell you how right you are about the challenges it causes once you were married. So many of my friends and myself have so much baggage from this. Full transparency, my faith is still super important to me and I'm married to a pastor, but I'm committed to not repeating that cycle with my own daughter. Like those are the vague and high level messages that are actually important to me because I think they, um, well, kind of similar to that email right before it, you know, when the, the I feel like I had a handful of emails that were like you're completely right not going to get too specific it deeply affects marriages and i think these are the people that aren't exactly going to go to their friends and be like i am terrified of having sex with my husband i like you know what i mean it's it's just not really like a comfortable thing that you can confide into somebody especially because marriage is one of those it, you know i it, it once you're married especially like i don't really think a lot of that stuff should be on the table to talk about with friends it's between the two of you and yeah, I mean, there's situations where you should, you know, seek counsel and can talk to your girlfriends. But like, I don't know, I it, it's it becomes a bit different. And you, the way you talk about your relationship is a bit different. And um, I, I this is kind of, yeah, a big part of what I wanted to why I wanted to talk about this, because even if it's one sided and even if it, you feel less alone, like that's what I care about. And not to put, you know put that on this person, but I just think some of these messages were like, I'm still in the church. I'm still very much a part of it, but I'm here saying that I think there's a disconnect between the way this is done and how it aligns with like, you know, being religious and being faithful and practicing Christianity, which I appreciate because I at times feel a little bit like, oh, am I crossing boundaries here and insulting people? But it helps some people that are still very much into it. Acknowledge that something needs to change. Okay. This is a new email. The I have these printed out. I can't read the first sentence, uh, but it says, My dad gave my sisters and I his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and it fucked me up for a good decade. Being Catholic, we didn't do the Protestant-style purity ring stuff, but we learned that church martyrs, uh, we learned about church martyrs who died rather than be defiled. Um, Claire Fallon from the HuffPost wrote an excellent, excellent article about purity culture, culture. I'll have to read that. I love her from um, Here to Make Friends. The uh, what's it called? Bachelor podcast. Let's just say that my parents were Catholic, uh, so Catholic that purity culture extended into them being very adamant that we use natural family planning. And then my husband and I willingly took classes where a man on video talked to us about cervical mucus. Oh my god! Don't even get me started. You need to get to, get with the times. Um, I got married in a Catholic church, and you have to do. There's a lot of things you have to do. We have to do pre-cana, obviously. Um, but in Chicago, they kind of like batch. It's like it's like a. It was kind of hilarious batch. Um, pre-cana, you know, if like a, a priest one-on-one -on -one with a couple working through things, like a you know well thought through handmade artisanal good versus you know i kind of felt like you know that like party supplies catalog called oriental training trading where it was just like miniature like figurines and like chuck e cheese toys for that were like a cent each like the the you know bouncy balls that almost had this gritty surface that were weirdly satisfying to bite into even though you definitely shouldn't eat them and like those sticky hands that you can throw and they actually go like six feet in front of you 
And uh, despite their ability to peel off and not permanently stick, they still left like a grease stain on your wall so your parents would get mad. Anyways, I feel like we were like mass produced, like little figure. There's so many people in the room. It, it, I, I felt like we were just kind of like in this Catholic assembly line. And um, so there was like maybe a hundred of us or something in a room. I don't really remember. It was a lot of people. And uh, there was one guy there. It's supposed to be a couple. And the guy... <laughs> And again, like, it's, I actually think the idea of pre is awesome. I forget if I've told this story before. This is where we were given a booklet and there's like all these attributes. And we had to check off the ones that we thought best represented our future spouse. And my husband just like underlined and circled fidgety. And I was like, yeah, I am fidgety. But I, and it helped me work on it. I am all for any sort of therapy counseling, like preparing yourself. I think that stuff is great. And that is a part of um, the process I respect. However, the funny part was, um, like a you know family planning is just not the best way to prevent unwanted pregnancies it's just like I mean I can't even get into it but the guy that taught the um, couples counseling or pre-cana to like all of the couples uh, he said his wife is usually there but um, she couldn't come and I was kind of like well this is annoying we're like just getting a man's perspective I feel kind of robbed of my experience when I, we also had to pay $200 to be there which is hilarious that's both mandatory and uh, <laughs> it costs money and the guy gets up there and he's like I'm so sorry like my wife is usually here um, you know we have a we have a family business and like she got called you know at the last minute and I was like, okay, well, I get it. You know, I'm a small business owner, or whatever. And he's like, yeah. So, um, we're we're uh, you know, we run the party circuit, and um, we do a bit of clowning. And my wife, she got called into an emergency face painting situation, deadpan, dead serious. And I look at Greg, and I'm like, we had to pay two hundred dollars to for a mandatory, uh, like all day, like it was eight to five or something seminar about like the health, future, the spirituality of our marriage. It, it's being taught to us by a literal clown. Like, what, how, like how 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 is this even happening? It was so good. It was so good. Um, but anyway, I yeah, the I need to pull out. I saved the brochure that taught us about family planning because I was almost shocked that in you know 2017 or whatever this was still being taught with a straight face. It just seemed so so archaic and so like such bad advice and uh, a way to not really prepare women who aren't ready for children yet. Even if, even though if you're married whatever, but like still I, I think you know and it was also hilarious cuz we were at, at the table with some couples that were like pretty like more like us and uh that are like, you know, we we respect it but probably, you know, we were living together and stuff. And then couples that were like very very much true love weights and uh we like another couple at the table i felt like we had a pact and we were like hey we could like gauge their vibe we're like hey do you guys live together and they're like yeah do you and we're like yeah do we put down like do we put down that we have the same address is there some sort of trick they're like we don't know and i think like we like i ended up putting down like my business's po box like we lived at like you know po 348 and like i don't even remember what we did but we were both like so nervous of how we write down our location because because the problem is we had to like uh get especially for a church in italy like you know, I mean, Roman Catholic, like these people like, oh, don't mess around for an American that was not baptized Catholic to get married in Italy to apparently, you know, a, a, a God among us. My husband, who was baptized Catholic, that doesn't practice it whatsoever. He, he was the one that deserved this. Um, and I I was simply like a gremlin, you know, just trying to claw my way into this you know, beloved circle that I didn't deserve to be. in, even though my entire family is very, very Irish Catholic and um I'd have like, I'd have three witnesses come on a Monday at like 3 p.m. You guys know how hard, it, like how much I've talked about making friends. To find three people that are all available, 
during a work day to go to church and talk to a priest for several minutes. Like they'd all go in individually and uh, talk and like sign a piece of paper and like do basically testify that I was not the second coming of Lucifer, uh, given that I was baptized Methodist. It was very, very strange. Um, but yeah, anyway, the fear, like the fear in that process is that uh, I don't want to lie to a member of the clergy, but I also was at risk of not being granted access or being granted the um, ability to get married in the church. And I really did want to, you know, if anything for like my mom and my family and those we've lost and like the faith is very important to many of Greg and I's family members. And like, I respect and honor the tradition of it. I like the idea of it being um, a spiritual covenant in addition to a legal one of the state. Uh, like I said in the last episode, even if I just go to like meditate in a beautiful place, I like, you know, I, I, I don't hate the concept of any of this. I just, a lot of the, uh, executions, rules, regulations, restrictions, and teachings, I just, you know, can't get behind. So there's one of those things where I'm like, I feel like I've lived a, a life where I deserve to get married in the church. That is such a big part of my family, even though I didn't have the singular formality because we were met to a Methodist church for a specific period of time when I would have been baptized. But without that singular sacrament, um, I, you know, everything else is ignored. Every other part of your life is ignored. It was very, very interesting. I would think at this point, it's like more about recruitment. You know what I mean? Like when they want me to be like really Catholic and have Catholic children. It just, it was funny how I was met with more skepticism than I perhaps thought I would be. But, um, you know, honestly, now that I'm doing this podcast, it was probably founded and maybe he read my energy. <laughs> also, I should... Uh, there's like all different sorts of emails. This one is from uh, somebody sharing the John Christ uh, situation where he, it just came out that he's kind of like a creep and like sex women and uh, is very forceful with women that are like married or in relationships and kind of uses his fame to hang out with people. And then ultimately tries to hook up with them and heavily pressure them. And there's just like a lot of improprieties going on with him um, that are definite like sexual harassment and he is a sex addict and all these things, but he kind of, his comedy, he, he kind of parades around as like a Christian man. And her point was the danger of girls who think that because a man is Christian, he's always going to do what's best for them. Um, it's a tangent from your purity podcast, but I see two mindsets, the purity at all costs and also, but he's a good Christian man. He can do no wrong. This is a very interesting point. And she's saying that both of um, these can be reasons that victims don't speak out in Christian communities like uh, the the type of guy that's like actually abiding by the principles and the type of guy that is not at all, but manipulating people by under the guise of like being a good Christian. And I think that like my, yeah, that's like layered and that's really interesting. And thank you for bringing that up. I think that's a really great way to look at it. And I'm sure there's a lot of stories. It's like, we've been focusing kind of on the purity messaging toward women, but what happens when, uh, men use that as their excuse to like seduce women and to trick them. That's fucked up, man. Can't even go there today. Okay, next email. Are you guys enjoying this? I hope this is okay. I think this is so fascinating. Please like reach out, DM podcast to be there in five.com, Facebook, be there in five's totally casual, breezy Facebook group. Just interested in this like format of like picking a topic, doing an overview then kind of crowdsourcing sourcing stories because I kind of, I really enjoyed it for sorority. And I think that, yeah, anyways, I mean, as long as there are other topics, but I honestly, I'm obsessed with everything all the time and I can get, go down rabbit holes aplenty. So also reach out if you have ideas for specific topics that you think aren't, aren't as widely discussed or maybe specific to, you know, 
us, us older millennials or millennials in general or really anybody in general. I just like things that are layered and like, you know, can be totally subjective and that like you kind of look back on and are like, huh, you know, you just kind of accept it is, for, is what it is. And then you like actually rethink it and it's a little bit different. That's kind of both vague and specific. So whatever. Anyways, I just like hearing from you as my bottom line. This says, I grew up, um, though it wasn't super, oh, sorry, wanted to share my story about TLW. Though it wasn't super extreme in the teaching of the concept, it definitely, definitely affected my life. And I've often thought about how I can change things with my kids one day. I grew up Catholic and my parents took us to church every weekend. And we grew up with the mindset that sex was something you just did not do when you were a kid in high school. Like it just wasn't an option no matter how special your other half was to you. And that's pretty much the extent of the conversation. My parents wouldn't let me hang out with my boyfriend anywhere with the door closed and someone always had to be home. The fear was always instilled inside of me that sex equals bad. I can't remember how it got to that extreme point because I don't even remember talking about it very much. Maybe that was the problem. Or maybe it had something to do with the fact that my parents fast-forwarded sex scenes in movies. They still do this. I'm 31. I don't know. Either way, at 31, I should not look at sex like it's a dirty thing, uh, but I still do. I was with my boyfriend on and off for three years during high school. Being a 15-year-old guy, when we started dating, he was always wanting to go farther than I wanted to, and I was adamant that I was going to wait. He pressured, I pushed back. Eventually, we broke up. I dated someone else after my long-term boyfriend, and he had the same ideals as the first, wanting to do more than I was comfortable with. At this point, I'm thinking, okay, this must be what all couples do. My parents are just being too careful with me. Anyway, one night, it goes farther than I'd like to and quite honestly was non-consensual. We broke up after that incident, obviously. I still don't quite know how to tie these two things together, the TLW culture and the situation with this guy, but I know there's some sort of connection. What I have come to conclude is that since my parents taught me true love weights, that's what TLW is, sorry, I didn't have my own backbone to stick up for myself. After the second guy, I was pretty much like, well, I guess this is what guys want and they aren't willing to wait. Okay, that's just it. I met another guy when I went to college. He was older than me and we dated for a while, but slept together after a very short time, almost because I felt like I had to. Somewhere along the lines, I went from being so careful to appease my parents to not being able to stand up for myself and my morals. Whoa, that line hits me. Um, I'm now with my lovely fiance and I'm honestly still scarred by the way I was brought up in the events that took place after when I first started dating. I feel, I feel like if my parents would have talked to me about sex and gone at it from a different point of view than True Love Waits, I'd be able to have a healthier relationship with it and not feel like sex is scary. Again, I'm 31. I just want to learn how to talk to my kids in a better way that makes them feel empowered so they can stay safe and in control. I don't know if it's even a useful story on this topic, but thought I'd share. No, that's incredibly useful. And I actually, I think that's like going to, I think that's incredibly relatable for going to be for a lot of people. When it's not talked about, and you don't know what anything is, and you hear everything through the grapevine or a friend or through a story about some girl who who did X, Y, Z in a movie theater. And, like, you know, you're just, like, piecing things together. And then, like, somehow boys know what everything is, and, like, they go for it. And I think that um, we uniquely, like, and I know I'm this is not data-based, and I'm just, like, making sweeping generalizations. But I think that the other thing about this era that we grew up in is um, since— we weren't really since it wasn't explained to us like what was what and what does what and you know anything like it was so harped on to just like not have it but then you ignore everything else like every other base leading up to it and um and not only now it's i mean not when we were younger because it wasn't as accessible but now that would be the trouble of porn to me is like well you're not going to tell people what it's actually like 
in that this is men's depiction of it, like, obviously, that's a huge problem. And beyond that, I feel like the way that boys were taught in our era specifically is this perfect storm of kind of the old, you know, toxic masculinity narrative paired with, uh, you know, abstinence only unrealistic outlook paired with not having as much like shame or blame as women and with like assault not being on the forefront of conversation with consent, enthusiastic consent, not really being in the dialogue. I almost think that like, you know, when all the, um, uh, what was it? Like when the Aziz Ansari situation happened, that was like a little bit murky in terms of um, not really taking no for an answer and being like pretty forceful and coercive, yet the person didn't leave. Um, I remember like during, I mean, obviously there's so many things going on with the Kavanaugh case, but also I remember like, I actually like took a second to sit down and think through some experiences and being like, I, I made my, it was normal to me to be uncomfortable. It was normal to me that I wasn't really as into it. It was normal to me that like boys were just going to like try stuff and I dodge it the best I could. And like, that's what's scary. You know what I mean? Is, is I, I can't even think of, you know, tell you how many times I was in the most like coercive situations. And for, I guess that's the joke is this is where I say, fortunately, I was like too scared. Um, not, not only because of like, religious implications or some deep-seated shame but also because like I just didn't know enough and it wasn't interesting to me because I didn't know anything like I, I just I don't know I, I like I I really looking back can't believe how aggressive a lot of boys were and I think a lot of us probably felt that because there was really no um, reason they wouldn't be perhaps worse it bred a generation of young women who were too afraid to communicate about it um, and didn't know any boundaries with as it relates to like bases outside of sex. And then a bunch of young men who were, you know, while they were told to remain abstinent, that left a lot of gray area with all the other stuff they could do. And when the person you're, you know, with isn't like really uh, communicating, responding, and doesn't really like know what's going on, it just like, it creates this like disaster of a lack of communication, a lack of understanding of what it, like is and is supposed to do and it's just like so focused on the man and like I feel like so many young girls similarly are just like weren't there yet and like but everybody was doing other stuff you'd hear other people were talking about you know the stuff they did you feel behind you feel weird and then it, I think the weirdest thing too is like when you've waited a long time and you're not really religious anymore and you don't even know why and but you know what I mean it's just like I I just I have so many th like I think that's a way more relatable email than you think and um you know, it's interesting because I, I don't put mine on my parents at all because um, I think that they, you know, yeah, I was very taboo in our house. But like if you I mean, I think a lot of families are kind of more conservative in that manner. We just we didn't have an open dialogue. They definitely fast forwarded through movies and stuff. But also, I think it was more in an effort to draw boundaries. I didn't have boys in my room either. But like, I, I, I don't I don't want that for when my kids are minors. You know what I mean? And I don't know why I, this is, I wouldn't handle it perfectly. I honestly don't know what the the answer is. Um, it, it's I think that like I don't know. At least in my house, I felt like it was more about what was age appropriate, and you know, depending on the person, that's going to vary. Than like saying something was bad. Um, the messaging about it being bad I got from church, but definitely there was hard and fast boundaries about uh, like having boys over where they could go, being alone, all that stuff, and. But I, the, that part I actually kind of agree with. 
But also, if it, I think if I had kids, I'd be like, especially in this as me being part of the problem, in the event of it being a young girl, I'd be like, my where my head goes is at that point, you're, you know, young women aren't like interested in really wanting to to do that. Like it's all the guy pressuring them and then you don't want to create a hospitable environment for, so you know, them to be get in a weird situation, be pressured, whatever. And it becomes a thing of like, you're not, it's like, I would trust the, my kid. I don't trust the other person. But then like, what is that saying? Like, I'm, I'm the problem. I don't know. It's complicated. It's complicated. Anyways, that was interesting. I'm going to think about that for a long time, probably. Because I don't know how, uh, what the right way to do that as a parent is. Because I, I think there needs to be healthy boundaries. And I don't think it should be a free-for-all at all. Because, um, again, like a lot of stuff I was kind of held back from doing, I didn't need to be. And I'm grateful for having the, the gentle restriction put on it. Uh, but anyway. I, um, I'm 23 now, but when I was in seventh grade, my school in Texas brought in an outside group to have a big abstinence lecture to the grade. The name of the group was Aim for Success. I'm cringing as I type this. Success, a word normally tied to grades, getting into the school play, actually defrosting the chicken before your mom got home, etc. Now used in association with purity. I can't. She sent a link to their website. It's aimforsuccess.org. I remember sitting in the big assembly room with the entire seventh grade class, and we all felt so anxious and weirded out and waiting to see what they were going to say. When the main guy started talking, I was shocked at what he told us. I will never forget the graphic, most disgusting photos they showed us of diseased genitals. I'm talking vaginas turning purple, covered in warts, the most disturbing things ever. And clearly looking back, the most unrealistic worst case scenario type images they could find. Yes, that happened to me too. They had several metaphors for what happens after you have sex, but one the one that still haunts me is the gardening glove example. The main guy put a gardening glove on each hand. He held up his left hand and said, this is you. He held up his right hand and said, this is the person you're dating. Then he violently clapped his hands together, making the rough material of the gardening glove stick together as he yelled, this is you having sex. Did it not look like he was kind of like clapping? <laughs> Then as he tried to pry the gloves apart, he says, this is what happens when you break up. It's painful, it's difficult, and you'll never be the same. My 12-year-old jaw was on the floor. This has stayed with me my whole life. It's still one of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had, and I still struggle with feeling shame around sex sometime. The fact that this program still exists blows my mind, and from the looks of their website, it's only gotten worse. There is a program now called Freedom to Succeed. Is this name possibly somehow worse than Aim for Success? And the tagline is, why wait for sexual activity? It's the law. I need a Xanax just reading that. Programs like this are so damaging because they are solely based on fostering an attitude of fear in regards to sex. Sex isn't scary or gross or bad. It's fun and exciting and special and literally a part of our DNA as humans to enjoy. Not that I think everybody should be banging all over town whenever they want, but everyone does deserve a straightforward education that communicates the negative sides of sex alongside the great parts. I feel sad for all the kids who are still being fed these toxic narratives, especially in a school environment and at an age where they are so vulnerable to dangerous thoughts. Thank you for sending that in. Um, that, yeah, I had, a, I, had, I had a similar experience with the images. I, like, blocked out so much of it. I was very scared because they were showing stuff that was so gross and I was getting squeamished that I had my head down, like, most of the time. Um, but I agree with you on so many fronts. And uh, also, I, maybe I, like, haven't spent enough time doing, like, light yard work, but I'm not, I don't even understand the gardening gloves. Do they, do they stick together? Have I been using the wrong gardening gloves my whole life? And by my whole life, I mean the one time I helped my dad rake leaves. <sighs> that was <a> terrible time. <laughs> I hate, I hate yard work. I hate being outside, period. But like when it was yard work day, I would just like, I would 
uh, rake one leaf pile. I did I did it more than once. I would rake one leaf pile and then um, just pretend to rake around that pile the rest of the day. And I would just constantly be taking bathroom breaks and like hiding behind the porch stoop behind like a holly bush. This was before I developed the you know brilliant tactic to get yourself out of something and to take out your contact lens. So I had to get thrifty and thrifty means thrusting yourself into a bush filled with thorns and <laughs> getting exempt from yard work due to a small uh, but temporary injury. Uh, this one says, my mom in, raised my sister and I in a Baptist church growing up, and I, I was very active in youth group, mission trips, Bibles, sleepaway weekends, sang in the worship band, the whole thing. I took the TLW pledge, vaguely recalled going to a rally or lock-in for it, and it was beat into my head. Sex before marriage was a horrible sin. At the time, it almost seemed more shameful than murder. It was woven into every youth group lesson they could tie it to. Well, in the uh, for the Strength of Youth handbook, in the Jesus Christ uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, they say that it is um, that some like prophets uh, think that it's one of the worst sins you can commit next to murder. When like I'm pretty sure they're all supposed to be equal. Um, anyway, my dad and I had a horrible relationship to my until my twenties. He didn't go to church. And I ended up having a father daughter like relationship with my youth pastor. I would babysit for his family, spend hours there outside of church events, and considered him a mentor and role model. Apparently, I made the worst decision a person can possibly make, not, and had sex when I was a sophomore in high school. Overall, it was a pretty traumatic event for me, not in an abusive way, just a less than ideal situation where I thought someone cared about me, but they didn't. Um, the same thing happened to Abigail when she was 15, remember? Um, and I confided in a few youth group friends I was close with because I needed emotional support. Somehow, the news I'd lost my virginity got back to my youth pastor. Okay, what? what? What, like, snitch? Oh, my God. I'm sorry. He confronted me about it one-on-one -on -one and told me he was really disappointed in me for giving in and just kept saying, you can never go back. I was devastated. It was a catastrophic departure for me to think I could lose my relationship with him because of a physical choice I made for myself in private. It wasn't the whole sentiment of God is the only one who can judge you a thing they also beat into our heads. I was never really the same in my youth pastor's eyes, and it was evident based on how he treated me. <sighs> I felt quite literally like damaged goods and soon stopped attending youth group events altogether. I focused on volleyball and used it as an excuse. The situation is something that still irks me today whenever I reflect on it. I shared this story with my mom years ago, and she was sad she'd been blind to why my relationship with him and our youth group went south. We hugged it out, and she apologized that I didn't get the adult support I needed during a, such a difficult formative time. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, like, in terms of being lectured and feeling like somebody you really respect all of a sudden views you so differently. It's like the definition of judgment. I don't, and you know, it's one of those things too. I think most people wouldn't have told their mom. That's so uncomfortable. And your mom probably would have made it a little bit mad, um, which, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky to get, it's tricky when the result of you doing something your parents wouldn't necessarily condone, uh, you need support uh, regarding the repercussions of it. You know what I mean? Because the um that's where it gets to be kind of like a mind f is like well i'm suffering or i feel badly because i shouldn't have done something in the first place is the focus going to be on the thing i shouldn't have done or on the support i need now i think that's an interesting thing to consider it's kind of like parents being like i don't care who you are where you are what you've done if you've been drinking if you did something wrong call me instead of get like in a car with somebody drunk or at least that's how i would feel as a parent it's like a weird balance of like you I would actually in a lot of cases want to reward the responsibility of and uh, like respect of talking to me, even if I was like mad about the thing in the first place. 
It's it's an interesting conundrum, actually. Uh, like some things, I think parents are better left out of. You know, like I did. You don't need to be best friends. I don't. I don't need to hear everything. My parents certainly didn't. I figured a lot of stuff out for myself. But there's a few things you, you really can't, and you need the counsel and support of an adult. And um, yeah, I'm sure it's an interesting dance of when to be mad and when to uh, reinforce that coming to you is the right thing to do. You know. Okay, so this says, I have a purity story background. I grew up in church and heard all the things about purity and waiting until marriage and even went to a silver ring thing event. I remember one specific youth group when it was all, it was just girls. I was told every, that every time I hug a guy or kiss them, I give a piece of my heart to them never to be given back. AKA too many hugs and kisses and my heart will be shattered. A hug? Yikes. I mean, I'm sure, do you have a weird relationship with hugs now? Everyone hugs. I feel like, when i don't know don't you think it's funny people are like i'm a hugger like i don't care if women do that but when men do that i'm like i bet like but what if i'm not and it's weird for women too because it's like a you know it's like a boob pressing up against someone's itch that i don't always love (laughs) um i also hate when men hug me really tight and i'm like i have a full face of makeup done i mean I i use a setting powder i'm not a monster but still like if you hug me tight enough and you're taller than me my face gets pressed up against your shoulder even if you have on a navy jacket, God forbid, a white shirt, you're going to have a full Wilson face, like of 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 Estee Lauder double wear on your jacket or shirt. And like, I wanted to warn you or like physically move, but I didn't know how to how to do that with like offending somebody. Like when I studied abroad in Switzerland, they kiss on each cheek twice, so it's four kisses. It's a when you walk into a room and you're just like you know at a happy hour with a handful of friends. It, this the salutations alone the helloing and goodbyeing bookended the, an event that wasn't very long in the first place it's just incredibly time consuming it's a lot of kissing and back then i didn't even wear as much makeup but also so many cultures do that they they, they do the like you know kiss kiss but then part of me is like actually i like that better than hugging because you don't actually have to touch and you can air kiss and i think that's why you know in the, the kind of old movie like cliche of really rich people being like and they don't they barely like touch or interact i think that has more to do like they got a full beat they they just did their makeup like they don't want to touch faces if i touched your face like it it would it would probably be like when you you know open a rogue uh, birthday card from a random aunt who doesn't realize it's like not great to send those cheap drugstore cards with like a crap ton of glitter because then you'll be getting glitter off of yourself and your floor for days to come. That's kind of like what getting my highlight on your face is like probably because I definitely overdo it because I have abysmal bathroom lighting. I'm a renter. What do you want from me? Um, okay. I think this is interesting because it's a story of um, uh, waiting. Uh, I'm really glad you're doing an episode on purity culture, true love waits. I wanted to share my story, which is probably not uncommon at all, or maybe it is. Don't you love, we all, we're such qualifiers. Your story's your story. We're all like, it's not that bad, it's okay. (laughs) And even I keep saying that about mine because I don't want people to think mine's that bad compared to other people's. So I feel you. Um, I'm 30 in Southern, so youth group culture was huge back in the early, mid-2000s. And while I have such fond memories, this has been something that I've thought about a ton over the last 10 years. I will actually give my parents credit that they never set, set an unrealistic standard for me. They didn't want me to get pregnant or be sleeping around. But they were very open about it being okay if you're in a committed long-term relationship and old enough. Like you said, church and youth group culture preach something else. The analogies of chewed gum or a piece of paper with holes in it were used to talk about how your value and worth if you had sex before marriage. And it was always this vague sex that no one ever really talked about. And no one ever really talked about everything else you could do leading up to that, which was a big blind spot on their part because that was a way around 
these rules that high schoolers and then into college students were participating in, but also leaving shame behind in the process. I had a high school boyfriend who also grew up this way, and even if we didn't have this teaching, knowing myself, I probably wouldn't have had sex with him anyway, just because I was naive and not very rebellious in general. I feel the same way about myself. Like, I wouldn't have done it anyway, and that's why I'm so pissed off about, like, the shame and, like, fear. Because I was like, I didn't need this. I was already, already going to make the right decision. Um, flash forward to college, I was pretty innocent and drank a little, but rarely getting drunk and always at least being safe and aware. I go on some dates here and there, but nothing really sticks, and I don't even have feelings for anyone until I meet my now husband, and we were studied, studying abroad. He, too, was raised in a Christian home with these expectations of, a no sex before marriage, but everything else was pushed under the rug. So being the good boy he was, he did just that before I came along. So early in our relationship, we basically knew we would wait until marriage to have sex. Everything else was TBD, and we discussed it a lot. Since I hadn't really gone further than making out, and he had, we had a lot of back and forth. Looking back now, I'm frustrated with myself. It was unhealthy to have too much self-control. We did it for five years before we got married, which is a long time to wait and have sex, and honestly, we missed the natural window. We would both admit that. The natural window for me looking back was probably six months to a year in, so I think we were realistically ready to have sex. But instead, we waited and tiptoed around going pretty far and then pulling back for a while and then doing that push and pull all over and over again. That was unhealthy, and there was so much shame for both of us, and that really stifled a lot of our inherent and completely natural attraction. I think that is a, such an, a fascinating point. Like, um, this was unhealthy and there was so much shame for both of us and it really stifled a lot of our inherently and completely natural attraction. Okay, I thought about this and I'm so glad you said something because um, like it's especially when you meet like your person you're going to be with, the beginning phases are so special and like marriage is special too. But it like I don't care if you've had sex or not. When you've known each other for a while, it's it's, it's different. And I think that like there is a lot of... Um, I don't know, magic to be had in the uh, early phases. And uh, when you deny yourself of that, it is frustrating. Um, I also know uh, several cases of people that almost, they made the decision to wait when they were pretty young and like still in the religious circles. As they stayed together and got older, they kind of got out of it. But then it, they'd waited so long, it was almost awkward. And they still carried a lot of the shame with them. And like, I also know a lot of couples too that would like, you know, they, you know, if they like still like drank and partied a bit or whatever, they like drink and like hook up and they wouldn't really do anything that crazy, but then they feel so awful about it and like vow to not touch each other for a while. And it's this whole thing. It's like, you're dating, you're in love, you plan to get married. Like why, you know, you're making it so complicated. It's like, it's, I'm sure it was stressful. Fast forward. Sorry, I didn't finish the email. Flash forward again. And we get married after five years of dating. Sex has been built up as this rip the bandaid off moment. And it was more awkward than we had hoped for and longer than we had hoped or expected. The shame followed me into marriage. I had suppressed the natural sexual part of myself for too long, and then I had shame from that too. I knew I was trying to do the right thing, which made it even a bigger letdown. I felt like I was letting my husband down, and the wait was pointless. Now we've been married for five years, and it's been such a learning and relearning process about our individual sexualities and ours together. Luckily, I have an amazing husband who has been patient with me and helped me rid of the shame I have. It's hard for me to even articulate the shame because it's more now that I am ashamed I suppress myself so much and that it was detrimental to my relationship with the person I love and want to be with more than anything. It's more layered. Wow, that is interesting. My husband and I have talked about how we will raise our kids and I'm pretty adamant about being honest with them and focusing my expectations on things like consent, maturity, healthy, stable relationships, birth control, etc. I want them to have a healthy view of sex with their future spouse and partners and don't want to put crazy pressure on them to be perfect and that in doing something natural in a relationship, they aren't messing up. 
In the end, I'm glad my husband has been my only partner, but I hate that we were so affected by the purity culture trap and even trying to do it the right way, it still ended up damaging in the long run. We are still Christians, but are definitely more liberally minded than our parents' generation, and that's probably true for a lot of us that grew up during this time. I remember being so judgmental of people I knew who were Christians were having sex with their boyfriends, and I'm so ashamed of that. We all kept the ball in the air, so to speak, not only being suppressed ourselves, but we were suppressing each other. So true. We were all taught such backwards views on healthy relationships, thinking that the unhealthy relationships were ones when any sex was involved is crazy to imagine for me now. Obviously, some were, unha- some were unhealthy, just as they are now that we are adults, too, but that being the sole reason is pretty mind-blowing to me now and shows how far from reality we all really were collectively. I think it's obvious this plays into Christians getting married so young and quickly, and maybe if we had met later in life and only needed to date a year instead of five, we would have different thoughts. But for our relationship timeline, it didn't make sense and wasn't setting us up for a healthy sexual relationship like it was sold to us in our younger days. Um, that was so, so interesting. And it's very cool that your husband's patient and understanding. I think that this, uh, when I gathered from some people even asked me not to share their emails, were like, uh, I still like this is uncomfortable, even though it's the person I'm allegedly, allegedly the most close to, but like, we can't talk about it without it seeming personal, but it's just so much deeper. And I thought this was a really interesting email and I so appreciate it because it's, it's the, it's beyond like, uh, okay, you can get past the, like, you know, sex is wrong, dirty, whatever. Um, but then to feel ashamed about denying yourself of experience, I think is really interesting too. Um, not necessarily that you wanted to be with other people. You you wanted the experience with your husband, but I like, I, I get that. I think that's really interesting. Um, thank you for writing. This person says, God, yes, early 2000s purity. When my parents moved to Virginia, they joined a Southern Baptist church. We started going there and got immediately involved. My mom, she would share this with you. It's not a secret. Had an abortion when she was 21. She felt extreme Catholic guilt. But when she found the Southern Baptist church, she joined a post-abortion counseling group and started to become a counselor for pregnant teens or women who had abortions. That's cool that your church had that. Um, She then shifted into teaching abstinence classes uh, that were called KISSN, KISSN, Keep It Simple, Say No. Well, that's confusing. That, that's like if sex ed was like uh, sexual education xylophone. And it was like, hey, you want to go have sex? And it meant like sex education. It's like kissing and you can't kiss. Kind of rude. Um, like, do, do I know? Like, it's, do I don't know other words besides xylophone or like Xavier. I'm really drawing a blank. Um, I had to go to a purity ball with my dad where I pledged to not have sex until I got married. There was a book called And the Bride Wore White that prom- promoted abstinence and basically said if you had sex before marriage, you were trash. Um, there was a male equivalent that was all about how porn was terrible. Okay, that's a lot of people said like the male programs at their church or school were only porn focused. And that's so interesting. It's like, were you going to get on like CompuServe or Prodigy, like America Online, like keywords and be like pornography? Because I feel like at this time it wasn't that rampant or maybe I'm naive. But again, I was... My middle school was when we did not have, like, the free and open access to the Internet. Um, we just had, like, like programs you had to, like, sign on to to get to the Internet and that were heavily parentally controlled and, like, no phones. Fast forward, I'm now 28. I live with my fiancé and I didn't kiss him. <laughs> Never believed in it and always knew I wouldn't wait. My mom and I have had many discussions about this and she realizes she shouldn't have been promoting abstinence only and didn't really realize what she was doing. It was all very weird and I think it was kind of a fad. Um... Anyway, she got out of that life, and now my parents have shifted to liberal 
Presbyterians, praise the Lord. Even our pastor who is marrying us is from the Presbyterian Church, and she promotes couples living together before marriage. It's so refreshing. That's interesting. I haven't heard that. Um, Also, I consider myself a Christian, but don't attend a church. Many of the super, super devout Christians I've met recently are so damn judgmental and rude. It really sucks. I also tried to join a church with my old roommate a few years ago. Um, We immediately felt like outcasts because we were 25 and unmarried Um, (laughs) non-virgins. Interesting. I I always wonder, too, um, like, did they ask you if your petals had been plucked? Did you volunteer that information? I just wanted to, this new email. Hi, Kate. I wanted to share the video we were shown for my public school sex ed that compares having sex before marriage to gross, dirty, worn-out tennis shoes. I grew up in Northern Virginia in an area known for being wealthy and well-educated and having highly funded and competitive public schools. So it's wild to me that we were even taught such outdated messages. At the time, we laughed it off, but when I began dating more casually in college, I realized these messages really affected me and are much more sad now to me than funny. I was truly afraid of having a high quote-unquote number and worried someone wouldn't marry me if I slept with a certain amount of people. Now, I realize this is completely untrue and just me internalizing that message, but at the time, I felt so much shame associated with sex, and the only place shaming message, the only place that shaming message came from was my public school. So I, a great perspective. Summer church, summer school, summer parents. It's really a three-pronged effort. Um, oh, this video was actually featured on John Oliver, uh, and oh, I'll, I'll play a clip for you guys. Because uh, I this I told you guys, I think, in the first episode, you need to watch this. It's really interesting. It's specifically about sex ed. We were told repeatedly, like in the video, that we would be dirty and used and not we would be dirty and used by not waiting for marriage. This was emphasized with multiple activities and lessons. For example, we passed around a mint, like a peppermint you grab while leaving a restaurant and were asked, would you want to eat this mint after it was touched by so many people? Our bodies were compared to the mints with warnings against letting yourself get dirty and passed around. On the flip side of this, I attended a pretty progressive Protestant church and was never been bombarded with similar messaging. Not uh, the only, truly the only thing I remember related to sex or relationships was loving your spouse like Jesus loves you. Not sure if this is what you were looking for, but that video has always stuck with me as a truly fucked up message from, gr- from growing up that was really only taught to me by a public school, not at a church or my friends or my parents. On a side note, I am a huge fan of, oh. Uh, okay, that was, that was about the sorority podcast, and I guess I have a personal connection to her. I love that. By the way, I love, like, when people, like, you know, people usually start and end with, like, really sweet things that I just feel a little self-gratifying reading, but no, they mean a lot to me. And somebody's like, I'm a, like, honestly, it just, I don't know, I just can't even believe people listen to me talk. <laughs> I really can't. Um, hey, Kate, uh, I share your love of, of, extreme love of Taylor Swift. Love that um oh here's a positive one so i might not be who you want to write in but i wore my tlw rings i say rings because mine were three stacked rings from freshman or sophomore year of high school until i got engaged last july and married this march congratulations by the way i took them off and slipped them into this his pocket when he was proposing so he could put my engagement ring on that's sweet my husband actually tied them to a ribbon and used it as a bookmark in the new bible he gave me with my new name on our wedding day I tied the ribbon to my bouquet and on my mar- and on my wedding day before I walked down the aisle. He proposed on our four-year dating anniversary, and we got married in March. Both of us waited to have sex until our wedding night. It wasn't awkward or anything, and we're just now playing catch-up. Ha-ha, smiley face. <laughs> All that to say, I have several friends who also waited and lots of friends who didn't wait, and that's okay, too. I think it just comes down to a personal choice that I wouldn't want anyone to feel pressured into either way. Not being pressured-shamed into waiting or not being pressured-shamed into having sex before you want to are ready, etc. Anyways, mine isn't a crazy story, but wanted to share uh, from a different perspective from others you might be getting. Oh my God, I love that perspective. Are you kidding? I don't, I'm not trying to fill my own narrative. I want truth. 
And I love that. And I think like you were a person that would make me want to go to church. That was very sweet and that was level-headed and that was non-judgmental. And I'm so happy for you. And I'm so, so happy that it everything worked out in your favor and that you were able to make decisions that completely align with your current values and that completely uh, did a good job of man- managing your expectations. I think that's beautiful. And that's what I want for everybody in any context, waiting or not. So please, if people have positive stories, by all means, tell me. That makes me feel better. Um, and I'm very happy for you. Thank you for writing. Um, says, uh, oh, this is from, this is a newer one that I got that is from uh, last week's podcast. Somebody that wrote in she said, I really enjoyed your podcast. Never felt compelled to comment, much less email you until I heard you ask for listener stories on purity culture. As someone who proudly wore True Love Weight t-shirts to high school, mortifying to look back on. I knew my one-piece swimsuit at church camp would prevent my brothers in Christ from falling. It brought up so many weird memories. I wasn't seriously harmed by purity culture like so many were, but I thought a lot about how to handle it differently with my daughter. I was still unsure other than knowing there will be no promise rings or contracts signed in the presence of youth ministers. Here are anecdotes, and she says all harmless minor compared to victims of sexual abuse, of course, but still anecdotes nonetheless. Um, A girl from our church was two years older than me, and my friends offered to do a Bible study for us the summer before we started high school. We did I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It's the Josh Harris book I've talked about a lot. When it's all purely theoretical and you're 13, it doesn't sound quite so crazy. When we were seniors and the girl who led the study was in college, she called to get us all together. She told us she was pregnant and unmarried and said she got pregnant on her first time ever doing it. She was watching a movie with her boyfriend unsupervised, unsupervised, and things went too far. I felt terrible for her that she felt like she had to explain herself to us. They got married and at the wedding, you could hear older women audibly crying. Oh, God. Several mentors. Okay, I honestly, honestly, I'll give those women something to cry about. You kidding? Several mentors felt led to tell her how difficult it would be that she had to reap what she had sowed. We all felt badly for her. <sighs> At this point, most of us had done away with, done away more with Josh Hare. D- sorry. At that point, most of us had done way more than Josh Harris condoned. He's who wrote the uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye book. Then he condoned and hated she was being shamed for what most people do. Still feels awkward running into her when I'm in my hometown. I've always felt that way about unwanted pregnancies. It's like, they're doing what everyone else is doing. It just, like... I just always challenge people. I'm like, think of a pregnancy scare you've had, and if it didn't go your way, would you want people to think about you this way? No. Um, let's see. Sorry, I lost my place. The older sister of the girl mentioned above who led the Bible study on her wedding night, she locked herself in her bathroom of their hotel room. Because it's tough to go from sex is sin and should be avoided, you should never spur a man toward those feelings to go for it. It's all okay now in one day. That's really sad. Oh. It's really sad. Um, multiple go- girls in my sorority at a, this big Southern school had candlelights where they announced they're engaged. Most engagement stories involved the guy washing the girl's feet, reading the Bible story where Jesus washed the disciples' feet and giving them a Bible with their new last name on it. Many of these people only held hands up to their wedding day. Going from a first kiss to sex in one day must be a trip. I'm sorry to laugh, but yeah, yikes. I mean, zero to 60. That would be a lot. That's the thing, too, is I think as we age, so does our like natural progression to be interested in different that like at different levels of intimacy. And like it is I mean, I, I, it's like you can argue to like pace yourself to like not do anything. But you could also argue you're completely off pace and like mismanaging expectations by like a zero to 60 model. Like, I don't know. Life in the fast lane. 
days of thunder down under, you know? Uh, also, I don't want, if I, the problem is if somebody, if I were to have a candle lighting and somebody wanted to propose to me and then washed my feet, I, I'd be worried that would affect the, um, the status of me being betrothed. Because depending on how recent of a pedicure I have, I do have some issues with hooves and dryness. Um, then she says, uh, multiple, oh, sorry. One friend dated a guy whose family was super religious. In college, once we, had, once we had started drinking and fallen from grace, wink face, she confessed they used to hook up and then immediately pray for forgiveness, only to do it the next day. The shame there sucks. Like they'd pray together. Oh, that's dark. But I feel like I've heard of people doing that too. Um, a friend asked our Sunday school teacher when it came up. We were in high school at this point. How far is too far? She answered, only do what you would be comfortable doing if Jesus was sitting beside you. <laughs> If Jesus was sitting beside me, I wouldn't eat a sandwich. I'd be like, whoa, you're here. What's up? Let's talk. Oh, man, the questions I would have. I wouldn't. I mean, I just have, I have so many questions. And then she basically says that um, there's another friend that waited until marriage. But uh, her, her and her husband literally uh, had did it in every other uh, place you can, basically. In terms of like the arbitrary rules of like, you know, you can put it in one place, but not the other and still call yourself a virgin. Like, I guess, depending on what you want to call that. But like, yeah, I mean, that's I think that's what a lot of people are bringing up is like people do anything else under the sun. Uh, but that one aspect and, uh, you know, does that make you I don't know, like it's so confusing. And I don't think that there's a lot of clarity provided on that. Not that I guess there needs to be, but like there's just not a lot of education on all the, the middle ground. Uh, I think everyone who fed us this crap had good intentions, and I'm honestly glad I didn't have sex earlier than I did because I was immature and think it would have led to more heartache. I agree with that. Uh, this person said, after listening to part one, I mentioned how girls and women were talked about as stumbling blocks for men, and we were constantly made to feel that any impure thoughts about us were our fault. And that made me recall in high school, another youth group in town had accountability groups for high school guys to keep their impure thoughts and porn viewing under control. Well, part of their accountability was to have someone confessed about having thought about someone when masturbating. So high school guys we vaguely knew would tell us if they thought about us during it, which is insane and actually sexual harassment. Honestly, I don't even blame these high school guys because this is what they were being told to do by adults who were shaming them for these impure actions and thoughts. It's so messed up all around. I remember telling my parents when a guy in school told me this and they were rightfully horrified. There's so many layers. One, everyone is made to feel shame in this situation, even the person who did literally nothing but be a person in the world. Two, these are 16-year-old boys who have crazy hormones rushing through them and making them feel bad about this biological change. And three, they're having these conversations when alone with the object of their desire because, duh, it's embarrassing, but how uncomfortable for everyone, but especially the girl. How do you respond? Uh, thanks. Uh, please get away from me. Uh, I didn't need to know that. Literally, there is no right response to make anyone feel anything but uncomfortable and terrible. Yikes. Had to share because I had blocked out these memories until I heard you talking about making women feel like the gatekeepers of men's desire and like it was our responsibility. Ugh. That's so weird. That's so weird. Um, well, so would the other guys have had to be like, hello, puppy. Nice to meet you. I've been thinking about you a lot lately. Hello, chocolate cake. I have far, far too long been thinking about your spongy interior. And for that, I've sinned. That's just, like, so foul. I can't even... That's, like, hard to believe that, like... I wonder if, like, they almost saw it as cause-effect. Like, it's so humiliating to tell somebody that, that you would never actually do it. You know what I mean? And if you connected that with actually, like... I mean, you could always do it and then just, like, not tell anybody. But you, it's very... That's so strange. Quick, uh... Oh, good, a positive story. 
Uh, I grew up attending a Southern Baptist church, though my experience was far from your traumatic sounding camp experience. As I grew into a teenager, I was shown this in scripture why God's design for sex was within the context of marriage. I was never taught that abuse was in any way sinful and the victim's fault as you were at camp or we consider the betrayal of the perpetrator to be sin, which required not only repentance, but to be met with justice through the governing law. To clarify, I'm sorry if it sounded that way. What I what I meant was it was never caveated that if you were a victim of assault, it was not a sin. They didn't say it was deliberately. They just I, I wish that they had been like, you know, factored in like what might have happened in people's past lives or gone on at home and like why they were so upset and repenting. I think that there was something deeper there. And it was, you know, I thought it was problematic. Um, I started dating when I was a freshman in high school. And even then, my desire to wait until marriage to have sex was counterculture to most. Not too long after my now husband and I began our relationship, I told him it was my plan to wait, and he thankfully said it was his as well. We believe that based on the story of the creation of man and woman and the description of why God created marriage, sex is a God-glorifying good thing in marriage. The love, intimacy, and unity that exists there without shame is a beautiful picture of Christ's relationship with his bride and the church. Since we were young, we ended up dating for seven years until I graduated college, abstaining from sex until marriage. It was not about guilt or shame or elevating sex to be the most important part of friendship simply seeking to obey God's word. We were trusting that if he was willing to send his perfect son to take on the punishment for our sins, we promised that all things would ultimately come together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I guess that's Romans chapter 8, 28. Um, our wedding night and honeymoon were actually wonderful, and we figured it all out together without the worry of comparison or rejection. Four years later, I would definitely just still describe our sex life as thriving. The way many teens are taught true love waits from the perspective of if you sin through premarital sex, it is an irredeemable damage, is inaccurate and hurtful, especially considering God has accomplished all necessary to redeem the broken through Christ. However, I can thankfully say my husband and I were not taught that way, still waited and had a positive experience. I hope this is a helpful perspective as you look into this topic. Thank you. No, it is. I want to share everyone's experience. It's awesome that you... Uh, like that's cool. That's cool that you like legitimately see the glorification, uh, the way that you know the church leadership and scripture wants you to. I think that's uh, something that can be mismanaged expectation wise, and is really beautiful if you actually experience. So, thank you. This email says my TLW experience. This was in eighth grade. I was a teenager and lived in a small town in Alabama, and went to the first Baptist church in my town. I was an outsider, not having lived there my whole life, but my dad was a preacher in the army, so as odd as it sounds to me now, the religious connection gave me a little bit of an in with the hometown crowd. However, their version of religion, even with me being a PK, was far, I think that means a preacher's kid, was far and above um, anything I'd ever experienced. PK, sorry. <laughs> God, do. Um, I went to Sunday school one week, just as I always did. We typically meet in a larger central room, as a big group, just for quick announcements, then we break off into the surrounding rooms. Uh, that Sunday after announcements, they kept us in the main room, and the tone got serious as they started explaining True Love Waits. I'd never heard of it before that day. They basically just talked for a few minutes about what TLW meant and why it was important according to the Bible. Then they passed around these slips of paper. She included a screenshot. Shoot, I can't read in the printout. Shoot. It's basically, it's a, it says true love waits. It's branded. It has a heart. It has this like paragraph about being abstinent, abstinent and, um, something about the Lord or something. And then it says name and date and you have to sign and date it. Um, she says they explain that they give us all a few minutes to think about things. And then if we wanted to sign, we could, and they would collect them. 
They made it sound like it was a choice and that it could be anonymous. I was young and very much under the influence of my parents, but even then I knew this was not something I wanted to sign on a whim. I remember feeling so uncomfortable and looking around, realizing the longer I stalled, the more obvious I was going, it was going to be that I didn't want to sign. Regardless, I was frozen, and by the time I started to move again, I realized this was not voluntary at all, and they were literally waiting until everyone signed and dropped their slip in a bucket to start the small groups. They legitimately gave no choice but to sign, or it would have been fully obvious to the entire youth group and, let's face it, the entire town because news traveled fast if you chose not to sign it. Basically, what should be a choice and theoretically an important decision to commit your life to abstinence turned into a forced decision based on shame. I still don't understand how they thought that was a good, fair idea and why they'd want to force impressionable teams to make decisions with no notice and little information in front of their peers, no less. Wouldn't it be more meaningful and impactful to give them information and allow them the time to think about it and have a truly anonymous way of signing? I was the last person to sign that day and put my slip in the bucket. They promptly started small groups right after I finished. That is weird that they were like holding off to like an obvious transitional event. And I agree. It's like, wouldn't you want people to like pray on it and like come to this own conclusion? It's similar to that play. It's like, you want people to come to Christ because they're like scared of, you know, this like weird cartoonish Lucifer within the costume from Party City. Um, turns out this was even more public than I knew. Also something they didn't explain. A few months later, my dad was reading the paper and saw an article about True Love Waits. He showed me the article that included a picture of hundreds of thousands of those slips of paper pinned up in in D.C. by the monument, I guess as a statement of the movement. I found record of this here. My dad, the preacher, asked me if I'd heard about True Love Waits. I told him yes and that we'd all sign them in youth group. I remember he looked so proud of me when he realized my signature was on that wall in D.C. Overall, I don't know what my point is aside from the fact that it was such a gross abuse of power uh, to get what? To get a kid to sign a pact that they'd almost certainly break? The crazy thing is now... I have shame for knowing that I didn't want to sign, but still signing and not standing up for myself. The shame never ends. Ha ha. This makes me so angry just thinking about it. That's 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 like a funny theme is like we feel bad that we were made to feel bad. And I think that the point about your dad is interesting because of the next email. But um, then the summer after seventh grade, I spent every single day at the city pool. I loved it because my parents let me go out on my own and I meet my friends there and it was like freedom. I didn't have much at the time. On the one day, I had the most fun day of my 12-year-old life because all my friends were there and I and a bunch of cute boys. I was walking on cloud nine that day and went straight home and wrote one of my long-distance friends about how fun it was and detailing of all the crazy flirting I had done in the pool, a.k.a. splashing boys in the face and then swimming away. Oh, and that's sweet, too, because you moved around a lot and I'm sure you've probably had to, like, write your friends. I feel for military families. Like, I can't imagine how... I was about to use the word plucked, but now that feels so inappropriate. Like, to be plucked from your environment and uh, constantly and reinventing yourself and friends with, like, bullies. I mean, I just can't. Like, it must be very challenging. Um, I never finished the letter and stuck it in a magazine on my desk. A few days later, my mom and dad brought up the letter at the dinner table. They'd read my letter claiming they just happened upon it while cleaning, and what first turned into teasing me about it ended up turning into a serious conversation. My father left a highlighted article about how girls should never date anyone they wouldn't marry in my room the next day. He grilled me for weeks after that, asking if I'd read it. I hadn't, and I never did. He continued to ask me and shame me for not talking about taking this seriously for weeks until he gave up. I was 12. And he basically, they were telling me that any guy I flirted with or went out with, because let's be real, I wasn't dating at this age, was someone I should want to commit the rest of my life to. Why they even would want me thinking about marriage at that age is beyond me. She also told me about the play Heaven's Gates and Hell, Hell's Flames. I don't know if like, I'm happy or mad about that. I think I felt happy because it further justified my, um, you know, 
hypothesis that a lot of this was absolute insanity, but at the same time, I will have trouble sleeping in the near term. Okay, this is kind of a different play on that. Kind of not similar, but um, uh, there's a portion about her dad. Okay, so this is a separate email. First, I should note that our church didn't want to pay for the copyrighted curriculum, and our TLW was shortened to Simply Purity. Wait, that's actually a little bit funny, like the generic label of something they don't want to pay for the rights to, like a like a school play. Like, uh, you know, instead of Grease Lightning, it's like uh, automobile runoff storm cloud or like big rivers, like, you know, uh, large scale babbling brook. Unfortunately, it would make certain shows like Pippin impossible. They, you would have magic to do to try to create a name that's comparable to Pippin. I could think of... If I had read this earlier, I would have um, thought through some great generic name musicals. <laughs> would like, like with, um, you know, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and like Joseph in the tech- Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Can they copyright that? Because they're like biblical stories. I know like the IP that goes into making the story. Yes. But like, would you have to be like, you know, the, 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 the big guy in the awesome Roy G. Biv threads? It's just, it's hard to think of synonyms for everything that work. Jesus Christ. Celeb status. Playing strings on the shingles. <laughs> Should I just say them and see if you can guess them? <laughs> a place not between, a place between 41st and 43rd Street. Uh, uh, the tiny, uh, tiny place of spooks. <laughs> oh, God. I think I need to return to my normal, terrible jokes. Usually I have more balance <laughs> with <laughs> levity. And I, um, wow, we're almost at two hours. This is crazy. No, this is so fast. I want to like read as many as I possibly can within a two hour period is my goal. Okay. So, you know, s- sorry for my, uh, uh, you know, Android of, uh, musicals. Um, okay. So my main source of memories is a co-ed purity retreat following fall weekend when I was in eighth grade. During free time of this retreat, we played Spin the Bottle to see what could happen. Therein lies the absurdity of this event. I definitely played Spin the Bottle at a church lock-in. Miraculously, I never got spun to. Both the universe and boys were not on my side. Before this weekend, my mom felt it time to sit me down and tell me about the birds and the bees. So I wouldn't be shocked. Obviously, I'd heard about the B&Bs many years before from a friend who fortunately had a very scientific book she shared with me. Um, I felt the need to sh- feign shock and awe as my mom explained to me at 14 which pretty much anyone who has been 14 knows is absolutely, absolutely laughable. The retreat was surprisingly science-based as in the medical reasons why it's wise to abstain from sex as a teenager, unwanted pregnancies, STDs, etc. At one point, the woman even explained the importance of condoms at a super conservative church. It was kind of amazing. That's awesome. I guarantee our parents had no idea what's going on at this retreat because they had never would have let us know a, com- a condom existed and ha- let alone how to use it. Maybe that's why they took you to a retreat. It's interesting. That being said, there was also some seriously manipulative stuff that went on. The woman leading the retreat told us the story of her high school boyfriend whom she loved. They had sex and planned on getting married. Then he died in a motorcycle accident. It was horrifying. Oh, my God. I forgot I read this email. Um, uh, she went on to tell how the man she ended up marrying was a virgin, and she had to tearfully confess to him that she wasn't pure and how hard that was. As in, think twice, ladies. You don't want to disappoint some imaginary future dude. I thought she was saying... God struck down and killed him in a motorcycle accident like Tony Braxton's video for Unbreak My Heart or Celine Dion's It's All Coming Back to Me Now. 
I guess it's better that the message is don't disappoint your imaginary future dude, but I also am still very hung up on the unfortunate loss of the guy on the motorcycle. Um, we also had to sign a purity contract at the end. I mean, I suppose it was optional, but not really. What made it extra strange, it was a small laminated card that you were meant to display. Someone mentioned hanging it in their locker, and we all agreed that was a great idea. Oh, that's so annoying. Like, thanks, Kaylee. Great idea. Yeah, we'll hang it in our lockers. Um, our dads were expected to sign the contract as well. I remember my dad looking so uncomfortable. At the time, I was frustrated that he wasn't more proud of me, and now I'm more frustrated that he didn't explain to me why this is such a strange thing to do. Okay, I thought that was, like, really interesting because um, I, I, I underlined this from this girl's email because I was like, that it's that's a different spin on it. Um, forget about the motorcycle accident, which I'm still hung up on. <laughs> uh, just the fact that, like, the last email said, like, you know, the dad was, like, so proud. And, like, that's kind of a confusing message, especially when your instinct is to kind of be like, this is weird. And then this person's saying that um, at the time I he looked so uncomfortable. I remember I was frustrated that he was, wasn't more proud of me. And I think that's so interesting. Like, it, how what feels so wrong to you, like, at that time, uh, and is so disappointing, and he's not validating you in the way the church is validating you, but only to come out on the other side and realize now, like, how incredible and endearing and how correct he was. Like, it's it's so subjective. Like, the be, the things we think that are right and wrong relative to what we're being told. Because he was, he was right to be like, this is weird. Like, I don't own you. And, um, but like, you sweet little, like, that's so sad. You were like, he's not proud of me. Like, that's just like the worst feeling as a kid. And I just thought that was like a really interesting uh, transposing of situations. Um, uh, anyway, my friends and I still reference this as one of the strangest weekends of our lives. I did indeed hang my contract in my locker at school. I felt like the important part of all this is the long-term effects. I did end up not having sex until I was married. Let's be clear. It was the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky definition of not having sexual relations. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, God bless Monica. Um, I, I worry about her. It's the, she was, the, if that happened this day and age, that would, we would never treat her like that. Uh, talk about an abuse of power dynamics in a slut-shaming culture. Like, Monica Lewinsky is the prime example of the mid-90s culture. Like wanting to have like a young harlot taking down a man of power with her seductive ways and her, you know, partially bitten apple. It's ridiculous. Um, but that said, it's also a good way to say what you did without actually having to explicitly tell me because I would feel uncomfortable reading it. <laughs> Anything sex related was definitely something I felt so incredibly guilty about in our relationship prior to marriage. It was absolutely influenced our decision to get married very young, straight out of college to avoid burning in lust. Um, actual quote from the Bible. My husband was less pure than I, and it did cause some serious resentment on my part, which I'm not proud of, but it still makes some sense to the weird teenager inside me. Like, he didn't even really care that I was a virgin. Like, wasn't this supposed to be some amazing gift I was giving him? I remember mentioning it to my therapist at one point, and the look she gave me really convinced me the abnormality of this whole situation. I think back to a time in history, and maybe still today, where women had to prove their virginity with blood on the sheets on their wedding night. I know my husband would have cut himself to help me fake it had I needed that, which is one of the ways I know he's a good guy. I don't, that like, wow, that could like bring me to tears. I don't know why. I think that's such an interesting and well-written um, uh, illustration of uh, like him him not caring that she was a virgin is an example of, of a person that the church could easily paint as a villain, um, but actually he's doing the right thing. 
and your perspective is coming from a heavily manipulated place. And, uh, you know, while he can cut through the bullshit, it's actually going to take you time to like not be offended by the thing he was doing that actually was probably the better way to be because he wasn't objectifying you, praising you, like fetishizing this virginal concept. Like if he had already have sex, it wouldn't had sex. It wouldn't be fair for him to require you to not. But at the same time, you know, you were you regardless of that status. So it wasn't something that was that important to him. And I actually think that's really cool. Um, and for some reason, I think that's like so poetic because, uh, like the, the concept of somebody, um, not fitting the mold of what the, the world or some arbitrary standard needs them to yet when push comes to shove, they'd bleed for you. They would do whatever they needed. They'd have your back a hundred percent because what doesn't matter are what other people think and the standards other people project onto us. What matters is the relationship between the two of you and the support and respect and love you have. And I think what really damages a lot of relationships are when people need mandate, require the outside approval from everyone ever and let other people's opinions kind of trickle into the way they view their partners. And while sometimes those opinions are important, a lot of times I think it's so hard for us to realize we not, we might not necessarily be right. We might not necessarily be, um, you know, prioritizing the things that are most important in a partner, but rather the things that are important to like a group of 23 year old girlfriends that are like, he's like, not that fun. And they're like dating shots guys, but how long is shots guy going to last with them? Like, it's like, I know, I don't know. Anyway, I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was really well written. Thank you for telling me that. And um, anyway, okay, we're getting, we're getting close guys. Gotta see what I can squeeze in here. I'm so if you wrote, wrote me and I'm not getting tears, I'm going to I'll read it on Patreon or something like I really feel badly like I want everyone's input to matter. But I hope, you know, I've read it and like it affects how I talk and it made me think really carefully about everything. And I'm just like so appreciative. This is a shorter one. I grew up with everything from signing a contract that I would remain pure until marriage to the purity ring to having a monthly lovey dovey nights at a youth group in which we awkwardly and constantly discuss sex and its horrors. That's what I mean. It was talked about a lot. At Bible camp, girls would have to wear shirts over swimsuits in the pool if they had a two-piece. We were told constantly that it was our duty to protect the sex-addicted, a paraphrase, but still, minds of our brothers in Christ by dressing modestly. You're the second person to say that you had to protect your brothers in Christ. Creepy. Is that a thing? I hate that so much. I'm so mad. Um, um, My best friend since grade school started going to church and youth group with me in junior high, and this purity culture did severe damage to her that is still being unraveled 20 years later. Many of my peers have had very unhealthy ideas of sex going into their own marriages. I remember once hearing a few talking about how it turns out husbands seem to enjoy it when their wives climax. It was shocking to me that this was one surprising information, and two, they thought a man who didn't enjoy his wife's enjoyment was anything but a psychopath. Good point. <laughs> Yikes. Like, they thought, that's so weird. It turns out husbands seem to enjoy it? What? Ugh, that's shocking. Um... There were ways I was supported, loved, and protected by my church and Christian social circle, but I also had parents uh, who were more discerning than many. But I still can't believe the way my generation was failed in regard to the purity culture at that time. Agreed. Man. The brainwashing, I tell ya. Uh, let me give some background. Uh, they went to an evangelical free church. Uh, her grandfather was a pastor, etc. Growing up, sex was super not talked about in my house. I don't remember even getting a sex talk from my parents' past. If you have sex, you'll get pregnant, get an STD, and go to hell until you're married. That's very, like, Tim Meadows, mean girls. 
Anyways, uh, another thing you haven't mentioned, but masturbation was also seen as bad. I remember my grandma making me go to a special youth group event at church, and the entire time they talked about not only how not only sex bad, until how not only was sex bad until you're married, but pleasuring yourself was a terrible sin. My grandmother and the other parents and grandparents were in their room the whole time. Seriously, WTF? That's scarring. I grew up going to you honestly, and also like of all things, like I don't know, is that really your concern? Not hurting anyone else. I grew up going to youth group and church camps, hated both, and I have a lot of opinions about how purity was approached to both. I camped the list of rules with the girls' dress code was long. Shorts knee length, one-piece bathing suits, no spaghetti strap tank tops. We were told over and over that we had to cover up and we had to be modest so that we didn't give boys impure thoughts or tempt them or distract them. At church, we were separated into small groups by sex to discuss discuss things uh like modesty and being modest as to not tempt the boys was drilled into our heads along with all of the metaphors about your virginity being a present uh tube of toothpaste you cannot put it back in the tube etc that's a new one i mean like okay if you're gonna do a toothpaste metaphor that maybe uh is is a little bit better for the male anatomy um boys could of course wear basically whatever they wanted until i was in college and had a specific boyfriend that I learned a lot about my own sexuality with and was able to let go of a lot of the shame and anxiety I felt. Um, I felt a little guilty every time I did it, knowing I wasn't going to end up with a guy. I assume this is similar to Catholic guilt, even though I'm not Catholic. My mom's sister was even more strict with her kids. My cousin got married at 21, and her now husband had never even kissed until her, their wedding day. Even worse, it was discussed at the breakfast table next morning, and my uncle sent her a text that morning asking her how it went. Ew, ew, ew. At her bridal shower, I noticed that one of her best friends wasn't there, and I asked my aunt why. I was told that this girl went away to college and went too far with a boy, so she wasn't part of their friend group anymore since she was so unpure. The situation my aunt described with the girl getting drunk and going too far sounded way more like a rape situation than she lost her purity. Instead of being able to lean on her friends, she was made to feel even worse because of her purity and lack of virginity for her future husband. This whole viewpoint is disgusting and infuriates me as I type this even though it happened four years ago. Four years isn't that long, and also that's so sick, and I I can't like that. That's like such an important point of how it's just it it affects so much more than like your relationship with the church and like the guy you're dating and whatever. Like the word gets around, and then people treat you like a second class citizen. It's so fucked up. Like it's so bad. Um, and you're right. Like she drank. Like oh, God forbid it was a sexual assault, and I I don't know. Um. And she says, I was sexually assaulted when I was in eighth grade. In class during a movie, when the teacher wasn't paying attention, one of the popular boys who I happened to sit by put his hands down my pants. I pulled away and moved so he couldn't do it again. But I never told anyone. And I vividly remember thinking that I must have done or said or worn something that made him think that's what I wanted. I tempted this boy somehow, so it was my fault. I didn't... Uh, lost my place. Um, I didn't realize what happened and how long my response was to that because of my uh, preconditioning until years later. Um, it absolutely infuriates me how my family and church treated modesty and sex. I feel so much unnecessary shame and dealt with so much bullshit as a tall, long-legged girl just wanting to wear shorts and always being made to feel like I was being provocative and doing something wrong. They weren't fingertip length. It infuriates me that girls are taught to feel at any of these things and not taught confidence and to embrace their bodies. Well, first, I am so sorry about what happened in eighth grade. That is so, so disturbing that, like, somebody would do, like, boys are so gross. I just, like... The, the, the fact, like, I cannot get past, like, what has, why, why would a, like, 13-year-old think that they can do, like, think that they have the right to do that? It's so, it's alarming. And, like, 
I, yeah, I would have been humiliated. I wouldn't have said anything. I Because the thing is, your currency, especially with, like, popular kids or whatever, like, y- you can't, like, if you're already kind of, like, feeling like an outcast, feeling uncomfortable and awkward, like, the, la- the last thing you can do, like, or at the time, the last thing you feel like you, like, the last resort would be to tell me. The last resort would be to, like, be on the outs with the popular kids. Like, I'm sure that popular kid thought you should be flattered, which is so fucked up and, like, it's so upsetting and I'm so sorry. And, um... The thing is, I, like, I almost wonder, and what's scary is, like, would the teacher have sent you both to the principal? You know what I mean? Like, it would have looked like you were, like, both doing something. I feel like that happened a lot. It's like, people would, like, do stuff under the table, and, like, they'd both get caught. And now I'm like, God, I hope people weren't, like, that wasn't happening to people that, um, I don't know, didn't want it, you know? And then you, like, call them easy. That is something I remember from our sex ed is, is being, like, explaining what easy girls were. And I was like, whoa. And then I also remember thinking, like, well, what would a hard girl be? And then the only person I could think of was, like, Tori from Save the Bug. She drove a motorcycle and wore a leather jacket and had, like, unruly curls. But I guess Jesse Spano did, too. Or um, Stacey Carosi, because she was kind of a ball buster. She was kind of a feminist icon, Stacey Carosi at the Malibu Sands Beach Club. We needed more feminist icons in the 90s. I mean, Alex Matt couldn't so much as, you know be complimented and she'd melt into a radioactive puddle and slip through the vents. I just didn't know who to look up to. But yes, also redress code. It's that infuriates me because uh, my sister and I got sent to the principal's office and Andor had to change so often because we are disproportionately leggy. And I don't mean that in like a model way, but like in a, you know, like kind of, especially when you're a teenager, like an awkward body type way where you're like the clothes just are not made. There's not enough options for, um, to like look as long as they need to like it's kind of like how I've, I've talked about like when I wear a sundress I feel so slutty like like Lily Pulitzer like it turns very red light district on me and I just am like I feel weird when I'm like spilling out of a dress that's like preppy and conservative and everybody else looks like so sweet in and like I probably actually don't look that weird but in my head I'm like straight up Coco from like like iced tea's wife and I just feel like buxom and crazy and like gross and like I'm just it's over the top and I just yeah it's part of that's the covering up issue but part of it also is like there's a factor of the dress code that's not considered which is clothes fit different body types differently and sometimes you can't help it and when you're in a growth phase and trying to figure out how to dress for this transition schools need to go a lot easier on people my sister got sent home like for a pair of shorts my grandmother bought her like my very conservative grandmother that would never buy her shorts that were school inappropriate and meanwhile she and I were both like pretty uncomfortable awkward people in middle school and the fact that we were like just people just like keeping to ourselves hanging out with friends studying like we she and I both were like kind of goody goodies we never really did anything wrong but the fact that like it was pegged onto us to like have these shorts <laughs> like so is for what like not to tempt boys like i guess i get that they were the rules but i just wish a little grace would have been granted to people that otherwise had a pretty pristine record and uh maybe couldn't you know find the right clothes for their body type the other thing with that too is think about kids like if you're growing quickly not every family can afford to buy new shorts like once a month for their kids or like I just think, you know, dress codes in public schools are weird and they're restrictive only to women. And it is like so, so alarming. One time in eighth grade, um, all the girls like it was really popular to not wear underwear. So underwear lines wouldn't show in your gym shorts with these olive green gym outfits. 
And um, this girl named Claire was doing it. So I did it too, but I didn't really get it. I was like, yeah, no lines, whatever. Like, that's why thongs exist. But like when your mom's buying your underwear, you can't buy a thong. And then like one of the gym teachers found out we had this like no underwear coalition. And then they called our parents um, and like or sent there was like a school wide blast about um, people not wearing underwear, which was kind of it's a little bit funny now that I think about it, because we we actually didn't really have uh, bad intentions. I definitely had like a a period in like high school where I did have bad intentions and I feel like I was, you know, like rebelled a bit and was like really boy crazy and like going crazy. And like, again, that's like the type of reaction you get when you have a moment where you're like, what have I been doing? Like, I've just been like judging everyone and doing nothing and having no fun and keeping myself away from things for what? Like these random people that I want to impress that actually are kind of like garbage people who just like to cast judgment on other people are probably living secret lives that like aren't actually as like chaste and holy as they pretend they are. It's like such a mind F. And like, I know I keep saying mind F and I'm sorry. I've already like cursed several times in this podcast. I, I don't know why I selectively hold back. Um, anyways, I could go into more of my stories, but we're hitting two hours. I want to get this podcast up. I'm going to try to stop talking. Um, I think I'll do one more email. Um and then i'll just wrap up pretty quickly and if there's any follow-up thoughts or emails if, if you guys have a, if anybody out there has a story they want to share you want to write in by all means I'll, I'll do a part three i'll do a patreon whatever like if i want to share um if you think your story is uh something that other people could learn from that you personally learn from or just you want to share your private feedback by all means please do and then we'll wrap up you guys are awesome if you're still here. <laughs> My gosh, I'm so I'm I'm the luckiest girl in the world to have such nice, understanding listeners willing to spend like four hours with me a week at times. It's truly incredible. And I'm just I don't know. Thank you. Okay, so this last email is she's giving me context about how her parents like she was baptized Presbyterian. Her dad kind of had a falling out with the church because of some hypocrisy going on. Her mom's kind of a casual member. Her parents were did not strict about religion at all. And I think this is interesting because I think what she's trying to express to me is that, like, you know how everyone's kind of said, like, it had nothing to do with the church. It was just my public education or it had nothing to do with education or my parents. It was just the church or it's not the church. It's not the school. It's just my parents. I think this what she's saying is like it's it wasn't anything besides my friends, which is definitely a scenario that happens, too. Uh, I fell into a very Christian group of friends. My two best friends from home come from extremely conservative Southern Baptist families and spending so much time with them growing up, second grade to 12th, I was totally emerged in Christianity. I'm a complete goody-goody, rule-follower, teacher's pet type. I say this in the least proud way possible. My tendencies are borderline annoying, but it's who I am, damn it. On the Enneagram, I am a type 6, looking for safety. I seek out authority figures in my life because of my lack of confidence in myself. Yikes, I know. I don't know a lot about 6s, but that's interesting because I have a, I have a, a visceral reaction to authority figures. Interesting. I never thought about that being like a personality trait. And maybe that's why, um, you know, coaches and gurus thrive. Not that you would follow them, but you know what I mean? If you're like looking for, if you need a guide. Interesting. Um, Again, I say this to let you know the context. Christianity fit perfectly into what I was searching for. Rules, authority, and perfectionism. That's so interesting. I became totally engrossed. And while I think I am a nice person and was generally liked, I know I did and said things for the glory of the kingdom that were ridiculous. I cringe looking back. The sex thing being one of them. My friend and I were basically always low-key running an active campaign for sexually sexual purity and loved inspiring people around us to wait until marriage. We had purity rings. We hosted Bible studies as 16-year-olds. What the hell did we know at 16? Why was this encouraged by adults around us? Youth group was damaging, to say the least. We often broke into groups of girls of the leader who would talk to us about saving ourselves for marriage. 
they said things like, if you're dating a guy you shouldn't be dating, you should break up with him immediately. If you don't, God will remove him from your life, and it will be a lot more painful than if you did it yourself. We often heard stories of women locking themselves in bathrooms on their wedding night in tears because they were overcome with grief that they previously had sex and not waited for their husbands. Funny, because we just read a story about a girl that locked herself in the bathroom because she did wait, and it was painful and scary and awkward. Um, these are <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, the guilt overcame them and would surely overcome us too. We heard stories that our virginity was the greatest gift we had to offer a man. I'm tearing up right now thinking about that comment. I know, same. The weight of that on a 15-year-old is horrifically unfair, especially for those who might have been abused. It's so wrong. My friends and I were always getting way too personal with each other and holding each other accountable by asking how far we'd gone with guys and asking others the same types of questions. Our youth group leaders encouraged this type of friendly interrogation. My friend heard a story from a guest speaker once about God encouraging her to marry someone she wasn't attracted to. But since God uh, it had instruct- instructed her to marry him, she had to. My friend was petrified God would instruct her to do the same. <laughs> oh my gosh. We were encouraged to not do anything with guys we dated that we wouldn't want our parents seeing. Do you really actually completely feel comfortable holding hands in front of your dad? Tiny boundaries were set in this really passive, sneaky way by leaders. Totally guilt-inducing. Guess hand-holding is off the list of appropriate things. My friends and I talked about future husbands a lot. We wrote letters to them, dreamed about who they'd be, while simultaneously dating and crushing on boys around us and wishing they'd be godly men, the godly men he was calling them to be. It was encouraged by adults in the church. We didn't daydream about our future careers. Psh, no way. My sisters, my friend had older sisters with godly love stories, and we daydream about the day God would bring that man into our lives. Crossing our fingers, he hadn't planned for us to marry people we weren't attracted to. Oh, my God. I, like, relate to this. Like, I saw older sisters, like, I not older, I, I saw people with friends, like, older sisters and, like, people that had these godly love stories. And I, like, even though I wasn't totally convinced, I was also like, it sounds nice to just, like, have a nice guy love you. And if that means you're godly, great. But, like, I spent a lot of time dreaming about my husband and not about my career as well. We were often praised by the adults around us. For our wholesomeness, and it left me with a ton of humble arrogance. I was good, others were bad. It was a competition, and I was winning. I wasn't even aware I was doing this, but I was. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't cuss. At one point, I even ended up in the hospital for a merit, very minor injury senior year and ended up witnessing to other patients around me. Oh, what a selfless person I was. I'm dying. Oh my God. You were like in. Like, you're, like, in the ER, like, in a, in a shared hospital room. Like, what do you even say? Like, hey, brah, you know, had you chosen to, like, walk with Christ instead of drive and then shut your hand in that car door? Maybe you wouldn't have broken phalanges. <laughs> Here's the funny part. I had a douchey boyfriend my entire high school career. He didn't share my zest for Christianity, but was raised in a Christian home and knew some of the tenants. He desperately wanted to have sex, but I didn't. I'm not actually sure he re- I really liked him that much. But I was having completely normal teenage human urges and had no freaking clue how to reconcile them. By senior year, I was totally wrecked with guilt. We would make out in his bed and I would be depressed and shamed for days afterwards. This is like, I forgot about this piece. Like, yes, so many of my friends, I say my friends because like I wasn't really, uh, you know, being made out with a ton, um, would like just, yeah, detest boundaries, feel shame and guilt, not talk, cry. I mean, like so weird. Um, when hand-holding is inappropriate in your world, making out felt equivalent to having a public orgy. In my head, this is how it would go. 
I can't tell my best friend. But what if she asks how far we've gone? I'll just lie. I have to lie. I wanted to. No needed her to know I was a perfect and God-fearing. I was as perfect and God-fearing um, as she was. He touched my boobs once over my bra. Oh, the shame I felt. I mentally bound myself to marry him to reconcile my actions. I laugh now, but I'm not even joking. I was so convicted. I believe you. He cheated on me senior year, and when a close friend found out, she gave me the book, When God Writes Your Love Story. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. Uh, uh, don't get me started on those types of books and wrote a long inscription on the first page about how if I dated a more godly guy, this wouldn't have happened to me. Oh, my God. But there was still time for me to change my ways. Craig just walked into the studio. I swear to God, I need a red recording light like uh, Rush Hour Renegades on Full House in the Basement. Um... Sorry, she wrote on long inscription on the first page about how if I dated a more godly guy, this wouldn't have happened to me. There was still time for me to change my ways. I believed her. I took the shame upon myself like people so often do in Christianity. Yes, yes, this is so messed up. The way people talk to you, it's infuriating. He followed me to college and I broke up with him four months later, but here's the kicker. He continued to have secret makeout sessions for the next three years until he ended up calling it off. I truly believe the influence of Christianity on my dating life led me to be terrified of men. I was absolutely petrified to date anyone new. I didn't want to publicly date my ex-boyfriend. Oh, God, no, but I was way too scared to find anyone else. So I lived in secret limbo for the next three years. I'd given my body to him, again, only making out. But I couldn't date him because, well, no one would approve because he cheated on her. I prayed endlessly for God to send my husband into my life to already to sit already to save me from the mess I'd created. The mess from making out with one guy. Like, bless your heart. I, um, I looked for subtle signs that God was pushing me toward the guys in my life at the time. Did we have this random specific thing in common? Did our eyes meet at one time in the food hall? Would God be using this in my story? But none of the men fervently pursued me or told me things like, I don't know. I know I don't know you, but God revealed to me that you're my future wife. Like I was led to believe they would. Wait, you thought that somebody was going to walk up to you and say, I know I don't know you, but God revealed to me that you're my future wife? If somebody had told me that at that age, I'm, I'm like so grateful I didn't. That wasn't planted in my head because I would have just like sat at the old bon pain and like made eyes with everybody by the uh, schmear. Fancy seeing you, schmear. I can only see, honestly, puns have gotten in my way my whole life in terms of men. I can only imagine. Great Mercy Me song, by the way. I can only imagine. Um, uh... Which, looking back, is very disturbing. I can't believe I thought most relationships work that way. Why did I think that was romantic? Right. Right. This is what I mean by the, the um, uh, like, how weird it is that w- you're told something is right that is actually incredibly irresponsible, creepy, and dangerous. If somebody walks up to you and is like, you're my future wife, you don't know them, you never kiss, you never hold hands, you never hug, you never do anything, you believe what they tell you, you get married fast, they could be a legit sociopath. Like, a norm- honestly, like, I don't like to use the word normal, but a normal person would never just walk up to somebody and say that. But to be taught that that's what should happen is so scary. It's so scary. Um, I tried to mix my, make my ex-boyfriend more Christian, but that didn't work. It was awful. Looking back, I'm like, what the hell was I doing? I was so overcome with sexual shame but totally scared to date anyone new. It was all these contradictions. It kept me bound to him over making out. I cannot stress this enough. As if if I was this conflicted over the stupid situation, I truly cannot imagine what others who suffer real trauma at the hands of the church go through. It frightens me deeply. I was the perfect personality to absorb the purity message, then cling to it. I so appreciate how um, honestly and confessionally and, retro- and like um, reflective this is. I think this is such a fascinating email on so many levels. 
Um, I think if someone had sat me down and told me that it was all okay, the purity is in our hearts and the sincerity of our emotional love that we offer one another, that sexual urges are completely natural and not at all sinful, oh, the freedom I would have felt. I was involved with the church and as a Christian sorority throughout college, but by senior year, my eyes have been totally open to the issues with the church and the religion as a whole. I also made friends with a lot of wonderful people who weren't Christian, and that was confusing but eye-opening for me. After college, I worked in NYC for a while, and that was really eye-opening. My view of God is now bigger and better than the literal adaptation of the Bible, and I cry for my previous self and those I might have hurt with my words of purity. I'm engaged to a wonderful, wonderful guy who I'm so excited to marry, but I still to this day struggle with letting go of the pressure and previous beliefs I held. They run so much deeper than I can possibly explain. Multiple times in our relationship, I've had to mourn the loss of who I was. Even though logically I knew it was a good thing to let go of that rigid Christian girl, I still had to let go of her, and that was hard. My fiancé has been wonderful and allowed me the space to do that. When we started having sex early in our relationship, I struggled so much with the guilt that we had to stop for a while so I could grieve. It sounds weird. I know. No, I understand. That makes me sad. Um, We didn't live together before we got engaged. It was a conviction I couldn't shake. But now that we're living together, the shame returns again and is something I'm actively working through. I've instructed my mom to not tell anyone we're living together for the time being. I'm terrified my Christian friends will disapprove. I've always, always been more afraid of other people's opinions than than of God's judgment. I think that's really telling. I have to work through the untrue belief that I am not pure or worthy of a relationship if I commit the horribly sinful act of living with my fiancé. Like, I've worked through the other beliefs. It just takes time and therapy. All this leads me to believe, even if I were still involved in the church and still had a fundamental view of Christianity, that I would be the girl on her wedding night having sex for the first time crying because of the guilt. Marriage would have not changed anything for me. I would have to work through all the thoughts that I was immoral and dirty and wrong— I would still have to reconcile the fact that I gave my greatest gift away even though I gave it to my husband. It was still my most precious gift and I gave it to someone else, so I don't have it anymore. It's not part of my identity after I gave it away. My identity is gone now. I'm a nothing now that I've given my gift away. It pisses me off so much that we're teaching little girls this type of messaging. I just wanted to share my story. Thank you for doing what you do and allowing space for these conversations. They're so important. Are you kidding? Thank you. Like, I'm... It was coincidentally last in my pile. I have goosebumps. I could cry. I could laugh. I could do all the things. Uh, the the um, needless judgment of friends that makes you judge others so harshly. The morning of when you abandon those beliefs, but you still want to cling to them because you can't fathom. You can't reconcile having wasted the time. Looking back and like the sadness you feel for feeling immense guilt for something that is so innocuous and so not worth all of the torment of, you know, losing friends over absolute nonsense over making decisions and moving forward in ways that you know are right for you, but not being able to shake the fact that there's going to be people that are disappointed along the way. And even though, you know, you need to do what's best for you, it's like, it's not a bad thing that you care what people think. I care so much what people think. I have to actively talk myself down and and backtrack of like, why am I doing things? Is it because I desperately need and want to be liked or is it because it's what's best for me? Like, I totally get that. And I think this is just, I don't know, I so thank everybody, my God, for sharing these stories that are layered and complicated. And I think what's most fascinating is of all, it's like a lot of them are still largely unresolved. And we're like grown women who are self-actualized enough to articulate this. These people are so aware of what, what's happened, what's gone on, how they've evolved from it, yet still have, haven't even fully made it out the other side. Because these things bury themselves in your subconscious in a way that probably only hypnotherapy or regression can tap into them um we don't know we don't know about 98 percent of the brain's function 
Like think about all this information we're passively storing. And like, we just don't even, just because you can't access it doesn't mean it's not there. And I just think we need to, you know, whatever you garner from these stories, however it helps you move forward. I just like above, above what, what, how it makes us, you know, approach the next generation. I just hope everybody feels, if anybody feels any sort of um, residual like shame or resentment or guilt as a result of any of this, I hope you feel less alone. And I hope you know that you're not doing anything wrong. You never did anything wrong. And that making mistakes and having beliefs and being impressionable and wanting to fit in and all these things that sometimes make us act out of character, out of turn and feel frustrated and angry about who we were. We can't because it was necessary. It was a building block. It was a, it was a, it was a place we needed to go to get to where we are. And I think that some of us having fallen victim to um, some of this really like uh, these strict regimented ways that are impossible standards to live up to and have had dealt with self-loathing as a result. Um, I think that in a strange way, we're the ones who are equipped to to be uh, communicating this and to be working with people and to to make sure that the cycle breaks because, you know, I think that I really, I think a lot of people don't understand how this can affect people. And I think a lot that makes a lot of people trivialize things like, oh, so you, oh, sorry, you, you're, you're like still struggling because of something you heard once when you were 12. You know, like people can easily be really insensitive, be really, and if you're unaffected, you're unaffected. And I think that when there's a million problems in the world and, you know, we don't operate in a vacuum and it's impossible to, to care about everything ever at all times. And, you know, being a person that's largely had a smooth go at it with a good life and great parents that heard damaging messages from the church. It, um, it just never really like felt like something that was, you know, worth bringing up, like, woe is me. Um, but I've, I've found too, that like, especially with the platform, I can't kind of su- succumb to that. What about of, you know, just because one thing's not a, as important as another thing doesn't mean it invalidates the impact of the thing that you're trying to minimize. Um, I think a lot of times that sort of thinking is what people use in, in uh, you know, everyday conversation to kind of um, dismiss something that a person's talking about. And they don't actually have a, a sound rebuttal or debate against the topic. So they just say, well, like, why are you so concerned about, you know, how the church made you feel about your body when like there are people being sex trafficked? It's like, I do. I care about both. You can care about things that happen to you and affect you deeply. You can care about bigger global issues and they don't, you know, they can coexist. They don't have to operate individually and wholly and suggest that this is the only thing you care about or choosing to talk about. And I just think in social media and in life today, we make people feel stupid. Like, how are you talking about X in the face of Y? And there's no sound logical argument as to how x affects y but uh people just love to make you feel bad and feel small and feel unimportant and um i just i don't know i think that i've fallen to some of these sometimes i like want to talk about these issues but i've you know had such a good life compared to so many and i just never want to complain i never want to be like oh i have a propensity for depression when other people have things that like are so like you know much much scarier and bigger and things i can't understand i don't want to seem like I don't, you know what I mean? It's like, um, it's like you only know your own situation. And when you complain about your own problems, I don't really blame anybody, blame anybody, but with a platform, it kind of sounds uh, like uh, self unaware. It's, you know what I mean? And I, this is a thing that I just wasn't sure if like 
I don't know. I was call, like to call too much attention to it, like wasn't a good use of the platform or maybe was too self-indulgent. Like I wanted to honestly explore it because it affects me in ways that I don't even think I'm really expressing on here because I'm still processing them. And I'm I'm being honest with you and that I can't even talk about everything because um, I'm like this was like part of my healing process almost. And it's part of my reconciliation with like what I was told, how it formed my beliefs and a slow deconstruction of all of that. And it's been a challenge for me. And I just like, I'm very moved that other people, the same experience and not only that they've taken time to share it because, um, you know, I think I find uh, so often that whenever I'm doing these endeavors, I'm often uh, seeking the words that I perhaps need to hear the most. And uh, it just, I don't know. I, I, I really thank you for, for listening to this. And uh, I know it's been like several hours and I'm still rambling and I'll let you go now. I just, you know, in a world where everything is so sex positive and people can talk freely and every female comedian is just like, I'm so envious of their ability to express themselves and all these things. And here I come with the platform and I, I, I like it's a kind of a miracle. I've even said the word sex so many times, but this is like it's. It just, you know, I, I, if I can, if I can represent the rest of us that, uh, for whatever reason, even though we've come a long way, we still aren't really the coolest. We still don't have the edge. I, the joke is, I feel like I'm fairly edgy for like, the, like my, you know, broader family and uh, like the things I talk about, even like doing this is like edgy, but compared to the rest of the world, I am like so spherical. It's not even funny. And um, <laughs> I just, you know, I want to represent the few, the proud, the prude, the spherical. And, uh, you know, God love you. We'll, we'll figure it out. That's not like my end game. I, you know, I am, I'm trying to carve out my own edges, kind of like how a uh, bird a la mode should have carved a shiv out of a Dos Equis can before insisting on a machete in her dangerous life-altering trip to a Oaxaca five-star resort. I'll never get over that. Um, I don't know. I just... I'm kind of not laughing to myself, but, you know, I get I regularly feel like, you know, in, in the comedic space when talking about sex a lot more and being a lot more unfiltered or are revered and prioritized. I'm like, I have no business on a platform because I am I am restricted. I am a bit self self-censored from my nature. And I wouldn't even put that on the church. Like, I think I'm just a little bit more reserved as a human. And um I can't beat myself up for it. It just doesn't really make the, for the best content creator. And I'm like, that's why I'm obsessed with like, um, like my friends that uh, like Raina and Ashley and girls got to eat. Like I want them on the podcast and I want to talk about like how, like, tell me about how you are the way you are. What are your influences? What were your idea? Like how were your ideas of sex and sexuality formed? Cause I am so impressed by people that can speak in an unfiltered way because what I told them, what I told Ashley, I was like, I think that a lot of people listen to you because you're they identify with you, but a lot of people probably listen to you too because they can't talk like that in their circles. And a podcast that allows you to hear things that you're not hearing with your regular conversations with your friend or husband or family is like refreshing. And you, you probably teach people a lot um, because they're just pockets of the world where people don't feel comfortable having these conversations. And by pockets, I mean me. I'm a pocket girl for once, I guess, I, which is what I wanted my whole life. But for, I guess this is for a different reason. <laughs> um, you know, anyways, I just, I always kind of felt like, here I am. I have this platform. I like, am not that like edgy or interesting. And you guys have made me feel like a million bucks in terms of being able to still bring value, uh, even though and I'm like, well, I'm not a comedian and I'm not a journalist. And I just never know like what my role is here. And I just like, I appreciate you making me feel like 
these things are valuable and encouraging me to, you know, talk about a variety of subjects. And I just am very grateful for you. I, you know, I started this podcast so I would feel less alone in the lonely days of self-employment when I was having nobody to talk to when I was in a really depressed place. And um, it means a great deal to me that if there's any way at any point in any capacity I can make anybody else feel less alone, whether mentally or physically, um, that's all I could ever ask for. So I'm going to play a song that actually means a lot to me. It's one of my favorite songs when I was in college and having a tough time and felt, I think I struggled with a lot of this uh, in my early 20s and I felt like nobody was giving me a chance and I felt very out of place. And I just remember loving this song because it's about faith, but not faith in the unknown, in God, in things that are so complicated in nature, became complicated for me, but rather having faith in somebody else and having faith in each other. And not in a way that insinuates worship, but rather the importance of um, putting trust and confidence in one another. And at this point in time, I just, I wanted people to have a little faith in me. Like I felt like I just was second fiddle to all of my friends romantically I felt like I didn't you know the grades weren't the best and I didn't know what I was doing in life and like I was just like driving a beer cart in a golf course and I just would drive around like the like windy roads of Goochland Virginia and listen to this John Hyatt song and you know in a in the low low you just feel misunderstood and I don't even remember all the intricacies of it at the time I just remember listening to the song and, and just hoping praying that like whatever the hell my life would turn into, uh, somebody would have a little faith in me. And like, you know, doing things with her, it's like my, you know, really weird career that uh, people, you know, around me. And I guess I've had to put a lot of faith in myself. And um, with this podcast, especially too, I feel like I, I, I'm not the biggest or most popular podcaster. I'm a normal person from Virginia, like just trying to carve my place in the sky hopefully using my ship <laughs> and uh you know i i just like it, i just like i don't know i guess i'm feeling emo because it's sunday and these stories are like you know obviously uh hit me on a deep level but also i just feel like uh bottom line i can't thank you enough for having a little faith in me while we're here on earth and we're all we have, like, let's just support one another and have faith in each other. And, um, you know, if you're going to blindly support something, have it be the the people who you love that are largely fueled off of the support and, uh, you know, championing of the people around them. Because I think you just never know what people are going through. And it's so important that instead of judging and instead of telling everybody else what they should have faith in, how about we just have a little faith in each other? made all the difference for me and i only wish the same for all of you so with that as always let me know your thoughts and i will let you know mine i'll be there in five i swear when the road gets dark and you can no longer see just let my love throw a spark Have a little faith in me When the tears you cry Are all you can believe Just 
Faith in me. 